Hey, welcome to episode two of We Have Such Films to Show You, the podcast where Josh and Yakov uh, watch all nine of the Hellraiser movies and uh, dissect them. Uh, I am your co-host A, Josh Millard, a.k.a. Cortex on Metafilter, if you're one of those people. And with me is Yakov Grinberg. Hey, what's up? I'm I'm co-host two, uh, and you know you might know me as Griffiths, Griff, um, all sorts of other nicknames, and um, yeah. Oh, the music. The music. So that that track you just heard. Now that was um, Chains by Gatekeeper. Now you might think it sounds identical to Giza by Gatekeeper last week, but it turns out that we just had the music switched up, and so uh, and. Uh, that's uh, so that that is the correct track. So we're using, we're using the same one again, but we're actually saying the name right this time. That's is, right, is what we're saying. Because I didn't get around tra- to I didn't get around to recording my uh, Moon River Hellraiser crossover. So maybe that'll be. Oh, next don't time. spoil it for the people. Oh, I, I mean, you heard nothing. <laughs> um, oh, I just want this track. Is, this this thing's actually got a little spooky. You, you people might actually be listening to a haunted podcast. Um, this track by Gatekeeper actually has a sample from Hellraiser Two in it. It's 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 amazing. It's uh, the, the the thematic tie, and, and you know that's that's appropriate because I feel like a number of the things I want to mention about Hellraiser Two are all about uh, things that are parallels and analogs uh, from the first film. So that yeah, that there was a, there was a lot of that stuff. Um, oh, you know what? We should probably get this stuff out of the way first. Um, so we have something of a web presence for this podcast now um so josh got got it got us up on itunes um so you could find us there you could find us on tumblr uh which is just we have such films to show you.tumblr.com and we've got a facebook group um if for some reason that's how you want to get updates it's just we have such films to show you it's a facebook group uh there, it has two likes right now one of which is me um so the other that which is might his mom. Not, yeah, basically. Um, and uh, hang on, wait. Oh, yeah, that's right. So that thing's probably not going to be updated very often. You know, we've been throwing some stuff up on uh, the Tumblr here and there. So that's probably where most of the action is going to be. And I've been enjoying that. I feel like we're, yeah. we're, finding, a, we're finding a voice for that uh, Tumblr blog. You've been doing a good job of getting some things added up there. Yeah, I just go through like the Hellraiser tag once in a while, and you know, some interesting stuff pops up in there, and a lot of fan art, a lot of fan art. <laughs> I bet. I kind of, I, I, I've been wanting to like do some like Le Marchand box uh, design stuff myself lately. I'm like, yeah, no, making boxes that'd be sweet. So we'll see if anything <laughs> happens there. But uh, but yeah, so check out check out the Tumblr. I think is probably ground zero on this or iTunes. Although if you're listening to this, obviously you found one of those. Uh, or you found this in a mysterious box in the desert in you know Indonesia or something. Do they have deserts in Indonesia? Is that I'm sort of temperate? I'm not sure where Indonesia sure. is. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, the point is, uh, yeah, go check out the Tumblr, I guess. Uh, and if you want to yell at us, you can yell at us on Twitter. I'm at Josh Millard. Uh, Yakov's at Griff G R I P H. Uh, and yeah. And also, it, it, this is a spoiler-tastic podcast, because seriously, if you haven't seen Hellraiser 2, you really ought to, but uh, you should also not stop listening if you haven't, because uh, who cares? Uh, but if you don't like spoilers, you are, uh, you are in a dimension of pain, uh, <laughs> I think is, is the way we should put that. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, 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 have actually, I have a question for you, Josh. Shoot. Have you ever been so insulted about your taste in movies? <laughs> um, 
probably, probably once or twice. Um, okay, follow-up question. Have you ever been insulted about your taste in movies from beyond the grave? No, I think that is not in my realm of experience. Is this something that you have a different answer to? Yes, uh, because I have Roger Ebert's review of Hellbound Hellraiser 2. <laughs> and I just want to read some selections from it. Oh, please do. Um, so he says, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is like some kind of avant-garde film strip in which there is no beginning, no middle, no end, but simply a series of gruesome images that can be watched in any order. So there's that. He then uh, proceeds to refer to it as a demo tape by a perverted special effects man. <laughs> and my favorite of, of the entire view is uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is an ideal movie for audiences with little taste and atrophied attention spans. Uh, see, that's the only one that I want to like argue with because I feel like the first two I think are totally valid criticisms of the nature <laughs> of the film, but that's not an insult to the viewer. That's just saying, hey, this is... This is what you're signing up for. It's not a uh, excellent film qua film, but uh, but that yeah, last that one—that's just sort of mean. It's like, come on, Raj. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think I, I don't I don't really think anybody's listening to this and isn't aware of who Roger Ebert is, what he does. But he's not, you know, he's he's not a film snob. Like I, I believe his favorite director is uh, Russ Meyer, um, who did a bunch of the uh, didn't he like do the, the Super Vixens movies? Just a bunch of like the the cheesy. Oh yeah, he's, like, yeah, he's done a tremendous that schluck. That guy? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah, so it's it that that's a that's a hell of a hell of a punch from uh, from Roger Ebert. Well, there. and I, I, I kind of wonder if maybe that's an indication of Ebert's uh, you know historical fondness for some of the schlocky stuff is that maybe that makes him a little bit more of uh, sort of bitey snob on some of the stuff that is in sort of the purview of of somewhat schlocky horror because he's like, oh well, this isn't the you know it's it's almost a no true Scotsman sort of thing for uh you know B horror movies because he knows what he likes and this isn't it. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe yeah. this is where he just lets loose. Yeah, this it, it, north. It gets a little too. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know. Uh, Rest in peace. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have absolutely nothing bad to say against man. I just thought that was hilarious. I think I think the the demo reel thing is actually kind of an interesting insight because I, I almost want to say I feel that way about the first film in a lot of ways. Like I, I think I had said that a bunch mm-hmm. last time that it felt like a lot of this was uh, Clive Barker and co maybe sort of thinking, you know, this would be a neat thing to put in a movie. This would be a neat shot to do. This would be a neat shot to do. You know, it felt almost like a collection of ideas that then got edited into a narrative. Uh, And not to say that there isn't elements of that in this one as well, but this one felt a little bit more like it was constructed from start to finish as, you know, more of a narrative. uh, Right. Even with all that sort of like demo-y, oh, this would be a neat effects shot to do stuff thrown in, so... So yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can totally buy that, but uh, but yeah. At the same time, I will say this: this movie feels a lot more like it's trying to be sort of a horror movie with a sort of a theme than the previous one that really felt like more of a story that happened to be a weird horror. Story. Yeah, absolutely. Although the part of that actually sort of falls through when you realize that this and the previous movie are supposed to take place over about what, like 36 hours. Something like that, yeah. So you have, you know, this entire just movie of just like these blood curdling events happen to Kirsty, and then they just happen again. Like she takes a nap, and then they happen again. 
Yeah. Well, which I kind of, you know, on the one hand, it's a little bit weird that like, oh, seriously, she's just having two crazy hell experiences with robot. On the other hand, some of her behavior is a little bit weird and manic in a way that I think is maybe more explicable if you say this is the ongoing nature of a weird traumatic shock than if you're saying, oh, and then she had time to stop and think about it. And then it was hell time again. Like it's the continuity almost works, even though I don't feel like they sell that super well in the second film of having that sense of continuity from the first film. It, it was definitely made that somebody who has no idea what happened in the first Hellraiser movie could just come in, watch it, and enjoy it. Um, although part of that is helped by the fact that they reused, I'm going to say, a good 15 minutes of footage. Something like that. From the first one, yeah. There, there's there's a couple of, like, the, the entire opening of the film is um, just footage from Hellraiser 1, and then, you know, there's the credits, and then there's a later scene where they just, you know, reuse a whole bunch of footage from the first one and then they throw in some extra footage that they shot look i don't, I don't know if I, I couldn't find whether it was um stuff shot for the previous movie and not used or stuff shot specifically for this movie but they actually had a wedding scene for um larry and julia yes that looked like it was attended by six seven people um, yeah, yeah. There was like one tight audience shot of a couple pews, and Kirsty was there in this terrible pink dress that I think was supposed to be selling. That well, this is four years ago, so Kirsty was younger, and I don't know how old Kirsty is exactly. I mean, the implication is like college age, I guess. So yeah, I don't know, like twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Uh, she was drinking pretty freely in the first one, but you know, it's not like it's unheard of that someone uh, under twenty one, you know, would be allowed to drink at a family get together and right. And uh, and maybe that's also maybe that's another weird thing where it's a film that's supposed to be in the U.S. but was shot by a guy from the U.K. in the U.K. Maybe is the drinking age? Yeah, is I it eighteen in the U.K.? It's either sixteen or eighteen. I don't remember. So yeah, so I yeah I felt like this pink dress shot of Kirsty at the wedding really was supposed to like it's like Kirsty's a like a fourteen year old girl in a frilly dress thing sort of. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that was. I want to talk. I, I want to talk about the opening of the film, specifically the fact that the film does literally open with what's essentially previously on Hellraiser. <laughs> you know, it's like, in fact, it just brings up Hellraiser as a standalone title card, and then we get this visit from the Cenobites and a really brief sort of manic recap of some of the main events of the film. But like you say, during the film. They reuse a bunch of footage anyway. There's there's flashbacks and expositions. Kirsty recaps the first film uh, somewhat ramblingly in the opening 15 minutes of the film proper. So it's like, why did they do this? Was this what, what did I, I have to assume uh, that that this was a decision made by like production people? Or meddling execs saying, you know what, you got this film, I don't totally know what's going on, so here's a note, how about you put on some uh, stuff from the previous movie too, so we know what's going on. It's like, it feels like it feels like there's way too much altogether between the previously on at the start and then the exposition about the previous film in the second film anyway. Yeah, I think they, um, I know they lost at least, well they didn't lose, they were unable to shoot at least one scene, um, Actually, the Japanese VHS uh, tape <laughs> yeah. of this film uses um, a shot of Pinhead and the female Cenobite in, like, surgeon clothes. And that's, like, the cover of the DVD. That shot never made it into the movie because they 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 spent some time shooting it. They took some, uh, what is it, what do you call it, production stills when there's a photographer on set just for yeah. uh, the production still? Yeah, I believe so. And so they shot a couple of those, but they said they couldn't get the effects working, so they ended up scrapping the scene. So that's at least one scene and this is this is what like a 90 minute long movie so you can't i mean 
you know, you can't really release a uh, movie into the theaters like that's significantly under 90 minutes. And without that reused footage, this movie would have been about 75 minutes long. Yeah, there, there's definitely and, some uh, padding. Yeah, and uh, wait, there was there was one other thing. Oh, that's right. Um, the guy playing Chouinard was injured on set um, because of the like the rig that they used for you know we'll we'll talk about his Cenobite later. But the rig that they used for it, he injured himself on. So all of his scenes on that rig were shot over the course of one day before he injured himself. So they, <laughs> I, I assume, they lost some more footage there. Um, and you know, you'd think you know the the first movie was a million dollars. They had a budget. They did a good job with it. This movie had a six million dollar budget. You think it'd be six times better, right? Well, you know, I feel like there was six times more effects on screen. That's so that's true. that's in that sense, yeah. Obviously, the math is sort of terrible for bang for your buck there. But at the same time, I feel like this looks like a movie that they spent more money on. Not necessarily that they made a better movie as as a as a cinematic you know work. But uh, there's definitely a lot more effects money on screen, at least, because there was like a there was like the one good uh, werewolf body reassembly transformation scene early in the first film, and then a number of totally fine little, you know, additional effects. But that was kind of like the one. All of big which shot. are in this movie as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of which were were you know just uh, all the big special effects shot from the first Hellraiser movie are in this, and a couple of them were just played in fast motion. Well, you know, you pay for it once, you use it twice. It's a bargain. It's uh, <laughs> it's just it's just smart. It's smart accounting, you know. Jeez, uh, yeah. Okay, so yeah, and so the movie opens with the previously on flashback stuff, and then just starts right in. Uh, the the music on this was uh, Christopher Young again, right? The same yeah, guy who did the, the first one. It, it it was Christopher Young, but I think this time it was Christopher Young after he found out who Danny Elfman was, because <laughs> wow, is this like the opening theme <laughs> is so Danny Elfmany? It's just got like these horn swells. It sounds. Almost like a, um, almost like the music for Batman, the Danny Elfman's uh, uh, music. For Batman. It sounds a lot like it, and I'm not sure. Did Batman come out before or after this? These were uh, Batman was a year after this. Okay, Batman so, was '89. This was '88, I believe. Okay, so it w- couldn't have been, you know, a, a, a ripoff. But I mean, Chris Young's music definitely sounds like he's 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 he had a big idea for this, and it's and it's a very very Danny Elfman idea. <laughs> Um, okay, so yeah, you were saying, so the movie uh, starts off, um, so yeah, the, the credits, the, there was no credit sequence. Was there a credit sequence in the previous one? Did the um, credits play over something? Yeah, no, there was, There was. Uh, I think it was just music and credits the first time, uh, and then we went to Frank buying the box from the dude uh, using his dirty fingernails and his cash. Right. Maybe uh, there this, was less credits, because this time it was, so. the, the, the credits went on for a while, and it was just black and white credits with music played over them. Um, and yeah, they went on for quite a while. I think this was, this was a shorter, shorter credit sequence, although there was still a, a short one. And, you know, it's interesting. This is the only Hellraiser movie, the title, which is not Hellraiser something. It's actually Hellbound colon Hellraiser 2. Uh, everything else is like, you know, Hellraiser something. That was kind of a thing in the 80s, though, wasn't it? Because there was um, Rambo, First Blood 2. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. What other, what other movies... Where the sequel was the was the you know post uh, was was like the suffix to the actual title. The the only one that's coming to me right now is Rambo. Well, maybe I'll think of some others. You have anything? I can't think of anything immediately, but I, I think you're onto something there. I think that may have been a an aesthetic fad. 
until yeah. they realize it's hell for video store clerks. <laughs> yes, I say I don't know where it is, man. Uh, <laughs> so, so the movie opens. Um, in a was it a hut? I think it was like a bunker. I think it was like a concrete, like dome bunker type thing of some sort. Like it, it was more substantial than a hut. I want to say this was like a something built out of a lot of concrete. Uh, but but where and why I don't know. Uh, but in any case, yeah, we've got uh, we've got some guy, some uh, a, a shot of a bunch of World War One regalia, a slow pullout from an old timey radio. Uh, and and like a pith helmet and, and and various things. Yeah, the pith helmet makes me think. I mean, they, did they only wear those um, in the jungles? Because I mean, that would be sort of like a hint to where is this to where this bunker is. I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know my military history well enough. No. Uh, maybe also North Africa. I don't know. Uh, someone who knows anything about World War One, you know, British military history. Is and, probably uh, yelling at their. Yes, this is a call <laughs> well, show. Right call in right now at. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like, yeah, it's like, what's going on here? And then it's, it's some guy fiddling with a box. And that guy, of course, is Doug Bradley, uh, who uh, we know is Pinhead. Uh, but this is the first we ever see of the idea of the backstory for these people. With the first film, there was no clue as to whether or not Cenobites were people or demons or, or what. But here we get, uh, we get the origin story uh, in brief of of the big daddy Cenobite of, of Pinhead. Could you tell that was, that was Doug Bradley? I can't tell if I'm horrible with faces or if they just did a really good job with the Pinhead makeup. I mean, maybe it's both. It's, but. He, 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 he doesn't look a ton like he does as Pinhead. I, I, I can't separate knowing it's Doug Bradley from seeing the scene. Cause I knew it was Doug Bradley watching the scene is the problem. Uh, ah, okay. At this point, I think I would know that that was Doug Bradley, but that's because I kind of like uh, Pinhead and uh, Doug Bradley, you know. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think it was obvious to a viewer outside of you know external knowledge to the contrary. I don't think it was obvious that this was Pinhead. So it's kind of hard for me to read the scene the same way that the uh, first time viewer would. Because right. I'm like, yeah, oh cause... my god, it's gonna be Pinhead, not uh, who's this guy. Yeah, no, that was that was how I watched it. I was like the, but I mean, you know, I'm one of those people where if like one of my friends gets a a, a significant haircut and I see him on the street, I'm like, that person looks. Who is that? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of mild face blindness, maybe. Uh, yeah, let's go with a little bit and preserve my self esteem. Okay. Uh, so, well, um, my, my my wife my wife has trouble with uh, actors, whereas I I think I I sort of grew up being trained on it, and maybe I have a little bit of a facility for it too. But like my my dad was a big film guy, and so I, I I'm very used to being like, oh hey, you know, I, I recognize people under makeup on sci fi shows and get excited, uh, and my wife is not so much at all. She's like, ah, I I believe you that we saw something they were in, but uh, the 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 so the spectrum of that sort of facial recognition is. Right. Is, is something that I'm very accustomed to being a normal part of the uh, the human tapestry. The Which, the under makeup thing I managed to do that once when I recognized uh, Kurtwood Smith in uh, Cardassian makeup on DS9. That was the <laughs> single time I was able to do that. I was very proud of myself. Did you notice Iggy Pop as a uh, oh, what were they the the assistant dudes in Deep Space Nine the 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 sort of simpering assistant race to the Dominion uh, the Vorta yeah. Was Iggy Pop in that? Yeah, he yeah he he huh. had a, he had a cameo in an episode as a Vorta. I must have missed that. It was I amazing. Watch it. That's pretty awesome. He like, uh, yeah was he was on that he was on Pete and Pete too, right? 
I never saw he Pete was, and Pete. Uh, you never saw Pete and Pete? I never saw Pete and oh, Pete. Oh, it's it's brilliant. You should you should watch it. He played um Michelle Trachtenberg's character's father. <laughs> I'm totally spacing on her name. Um so Hellraiser. Hellraiser, uh, <laughs> that's what we were talking about. <laughs> what is this podcast about again? Star Trek? Um so Hellraiser. Okay, so So we get we so, get we get this guy. Uh, right. And, and he he unlocks the box. And I think it's interesting that we cut straight to him implicitly probably having been fiddling with a box, but we never get the sense that he's been working on it for a good long time. You know, it seems to sort of shortcut Clive Barker's intent in most of his storytelling where there's a puzzle, where like in the books, when when, he, when he's writing about a puzzle in a book, there's always this sense that someone sort of struggled with it, you know, and that it's a long process and coming back to it and obsessing with it. Uh, but in these films, we always just get, okay, well, let's jump in five seconds before he manages to solve it. And, you know, having someone look a little bit sweaty doesn't really sell it yeah. quite as well as, like, an actual sense of that struggle. But anyway, that's just – that's a nitpick on I think the issue part. is that there's – you can only make fondling that box interesting <laughs> <laughs> for so long because there, there's no buttons on it. I mean, you just sort of well, poke around it and then and then it does shit. So I, I'm not saying 20-minute-long yeah. 20 uninterrupted shot of guy doing his best to sell struggling with a puzzle. I'm saying, like, you know, even a little bit of a montage, maybe. Like, the idea that someone would spend potentially a year trying to put this together and, you know, convey in, you know, you could do this in, in, in a minute, a minute and a half with, you know, four or five shots. You could sell uh, sort of the collapse of everything else in their life as they become manically obsessed with this thing, you know, go from being, for example, like, you know, happily married or, or getting along in a good relationship and spending time with friends to being sort of wasted away and, and isolated and, and whatnot. You know, you could sell that pretty easily. And there's none of that here. It's just like, oh, here's some guy with a box. Okay. I, I feel like that's a, a, something the film could have done a better job of to sort of sell the, the theme of obsession that, that yeah. tends to come with Barker's writing on these subjects. There's a lot of really, really weird like editing choices in this movie. Um, just generally, like there's like the way they they cut between certain scenes, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we actually talk about the scenes. But there was a lot of really like the first movie was edited pretty fantastically, and this one, um, it it just feels like somebody who knows what they're doing but not enough. See, I would uh, I, I I agree that this movie has a bunch of editing problems, but I I don't have nearly as charitable a take on the first movie. I feel it also had a bunch of editing problems and it's almost it's almost another parallel between the films that that continues in a grand tradition here but uh we we should do a we should we should do a uh a a, a wrap-up episode sometime after we've been through the whole body and and revisit some of these uh points yeah, of disagreement a, uh yeah and so I mean, note, I'm note for posterity we disagree about how well edited the first film was <laughs> if, if you agree or disagree call in now um oh that oh, joke is not gonna get tired here. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um oh yes yeah, so yeah so um so doug bradley messing with the box uh that leads into the pinhead transformation scene which is like the first um big fx shot of uh the second film uh and, and it looks pretty amazing where where uh you know all of a sudden you see is like his face just black everywhere else just his face and i think like a giant carving knife comes out of nowhere and like slashes a grid onto his face and then the uh the pins fly in and pinhead yep i see and and here i liked the idea of this scene better than i liked this scene i felt like I, I felt like the editing in that itself was a little bit weird and you know okay it's maybe disorienting montage and whatnot but 
But then we get these these cuts in the middle of him being carved up to smiling, ugly, yellowed teeth that are presumably his, smiling in an evil I am embracing what I've become sort of way. But it, like as, as a sequence, it's like, oh, some terrible things and also some smiling and some terrible things and some, also some smiling. It, it just... And he's like howling in pain yeah, when he's not smiling, and yeah, yeah. And I can buy the idea that maybe it's supposed to represent a, a, a an overloading of the senses and sort of like a a smearing together of the process of experiencing things. But uh, but I feel like I'm being pretty generous in offering that interpretation, just saying why is this you know look sort of like a, a silly mess here. So uh, that may be that may be part of where we disagree on some of this stuff. I may be being a little bit harsher in my. Uh, literal interpretation of edits uh, and thus judging the editing as a little bit. Uh, you know who agrees clumpier. with you though? Oh, you know, I bet, I bet a famous film critic does. No, um, I'm actually going to say whoever it was that edited this movie for theatrical release, because that scene was not in the theatrical release. They oh, cut it really? out. Really Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's or, they cut out at least some of it. I don't know if it's the whole thing, but uh, yeah, they, the, the, the transformation scene was much, much shorter for the theatrical release, huh. which I mean, I, I have no, I, which must have been meant that it was under 90 minutes long. I guess, because, yeah, it was like 90, 93, maybe, this cut was. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, so it, it was, but it is, regardless of quibbles about how it was handled, it's interesting because we are, for the first time, getting a sense of a history to these Cenobites. We do get this picture that Pinhead started as a human and now he is something else rather than him just sort of being some demon that exists who happened to have pins in his head as, as, how he looks so right and there was a, i think i have this in my notes and i really wish i had uh written down um who this was that this this note is about but there's there's like almost a citizen caney shot where there's like an extremely close uh close-up of i think it was kirsty's eye and then whispering it was it was just a lot like the uh, the 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 rosebud shot of his shot in citizen <laughs> kane and to to it, or at least it, it was shot by somebody who had seen that scene before. Um, I, that I, I feel like there, there was actually a couple of uh, just um, camera work or uh, like scene setting homages in this that I can't tell if somebody was just calling back to those things or just like, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to throw that in my movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's. So we get so Pinhead. Over. We're done with Pinhead. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Kirsty. We, we jumped to mm-hmm. Kirsty Cotton, heroine. As uh, insofar as there is such a thing from the first film, the daughter of Larry Cotton, the stepdaughter of Julia Cotton, uh, the niece of Frank Cotton, uh, all of them now deceased. But Kirsty somehow came through alive and she's in uh, the Genard Institute, uh, so named, I guess, for Dr. Genard, who will be a major character in this uh, and some cop is telling her that her boyfriend, I guess he was her boyfriend. Did we establish boyfriend? I Cusack? Guess? Yeah, yeah. Fake John Cusack. Uh, yeah, Steve, Steve, yeah. Uh, got sent home hours ago, and then we never see him again in the film. And I realized, like you say, this may be a short time period, like just a couple days. But still, Steve doesn't come by to say, oh, hey, Kirsty, how are you doing in that mental institute? You doing okay? <laughs> no, he's just gone. He's like, fuck it. I'm going to go buy a sweater that's even worse and find a new girl to be in american english love with so that, yep. well, that was kind of a dick thing like they brought everybody back except for steve steve yeah man. and and the cop that there's, there's so there's she's she's talking to a cop she's being interviewed by and and this is like the the single most sympathetic cop i have ever seen in cinema <laughs> 
He's just, you know, he's he, you know, he looks like a tough, like hard-boiled, like sort of, you know, he's, he's got the mustache and he's balding and the, the cheap suit and he's weary, like he's, you know, been solving murders all day. And he's just like, so, so tell me how how was it? And then she's just like, oh, clearly you're not doing very well. I'll come back. And he's he's a little too sympathetic for 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 the role. I have no idea why they why they decided to play it like that. But I, I the only reason I could think is just because. In this shot, in this scene, Kirsty is doing a lot of like acting. Yeah, like they're, they're, that shot of her like against the, uh, the the rainy window, like crying and then just like intoning like what's going on in the past. You know, there was there was a lot of like acting shots. Yeah, you almost needed him just as a straight man to ground the scene so it didn't all come off like uh, insane melodrama. Even <laughs> though that's mostly the tone of the film. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. He was very uh, he was very sort of grounded. He was kind of like. Uh, I think maybe he could just tell everything else was nuts. And he's like, hey, I'm going to go uh, be a cop. I'll check in with you later, see if you're feeling more like uh, someone who's not reciting lines. <laughs> uh, oh, and yeah, they've got the callbacks. Uh, in that conversation, we cut to the cotton house, uh, which apparently did not burn down. Uh, yeah. I guess that decisively answers it. That was, in fact, at the end of the first film, the field where people burn evil things in not London uh, and and not the completely implausible burning remains of the house despite the end shot in that film of frank's photo burning somewhere uh but yeah so we get the, we get the cops back at the house and they find like some of frank's uh nasty sexy photos and they find yeah, frank, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna keep track to see if pornography is a recurring theme because i've this is there was some in the previous one more frank's porn in this one and there's like at least two other ones where there's like visible pornography on screen i, I think that might be a, a recurring element of the hellraiser movies i think it might be and you know i, I feel like to some extent uh it may be reflective of a general tendency of Barker's writing to include some sexuality, but it's it's weird that sexuality turns out to be like totally weirdly ham-handed sexuality in, the, in oh, yeah. what we actually get in the films. Uh, so including the uh, the um, I, I I don't know if this was cut from the original one or reshot for this one, but there is more footage of Frank and Julia fucking. Yeah, they had a, they, they had the material uh, by the end of this film for a good like two or three minute you know soft core short about uh, when Frank met Julia. He comes to fix the cable or whatever. Yeah, and uh, it's I, I want to know who asked for that. <laughs> it's like it tested really great with audiences last time. Let's <laughs> let's have more of the, the 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 embarrassing weird sex scene. And you know what? The, you know what he needs? The, you know what was really missing last time? Visible thrusting. Yes, they yes. really had to put that in there because I I didn't believe it until I saw the visible thrusting. I did not believe that they were truly having sex. It's like it's like I always say in production meetings: the thrust is a must. You know, it's. <laughs> You can't not have it. Uh, no butts. Let's have some ruts. Uh, uh, okay, so but, but anyway, we got the cop. We got the, the yep. house uh, where the one of the cops gets spooked and shoots the hell out of a mummified corpse, which... Which just even, sort of jumped out of the closet. Yeah, and how did no he get... Reason. I mean, also in that room is a one of, another one of the murder bait dudes who's still all maggoty, just like we had in the first film. So how did this guy get so withered? I, I, I don't know. Uh it, it, yeah, the, the, what happens when, when somebody has their like life essence drained is really inconsistent because you see a lot of different things happening to people. Um, and in this movie, you know, a bunch of other people get drained and all, the, all sorts of different shit happens to them every time they get, they get drained. So I, I think if, if there was a Hellraiser uh, source book for a Hellraiser RPG and God let someone tell me that there actually is one, uh, that would be a table. You'd have to roll a d20 
just to find out what happens. That would like be when awesome. A sub-bite, yeah. Maybe, maybe we've got some writing to do. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so there's all that bullshit back at the house establishing and the mattress, the mattress at the house, the, which becomes a thing here. But the mattress has a bunch of blood on it from when Julia was off screen, tortured and killed by the Cenobites, despite being apparently already dead. I don't know. But there's the blood on the mattress, but there's also hooks like the yep. Cenobites didn't even clean up after themselves that much. It's like, oh, we got most of the hooks we killed her with a uh, couple in the mattress. Who cares? Yeah. Also, in, in the first movie, it looked like they, they definitely like sliced her face open but there are all of the stains are like from like around the neck down did yeah. you notice that yeah they, it's like they, they were just i don't know i i these cenobites i'm starting to believe this movie may not be totally realistic mm, i thought this was a documentary <laughs> so i was uh, lied to but yeah yeah they, they left the chains <laughs> and you think it, it you think there'd be like Another Hellraiser movie where they're just like, oh, we've got the ultimate weapon of hell. We've got the chains. But no, it's just, just some yeah, chains. Mean, doesn't matter if they came from hell. Yeah, if the box is good, why not the chains? Yeah. Uh, or box is, but I guess we'll get to that. Uh, so the next major introduction thing we have in the film is Dr. Is it Gerard? It's Chenard. Chenard. Dr. Yes. Chenard uh, is our our antagonist, as it turns out for this film, our primary antagonist. And he spends uh, the entire film doing a James Mason impression. Yeah. You know what, what I wanted to say was, uh, it immediately made me think of, uh, did you ever see Garth Marenghi's dark place? Yes. Yeah. Matt Berry had this, uh, this satirical, uh, show on, uh, I think it was adult swim was airing it. It was BBC. Uh, oh, adult, I think adult swim was airing it, but it was a BBC show. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I saw it via adult swim. I should say, uh, yeah, and Matt Berry has this character, Doctor Rick Daglas, M.D., who's the uh, doctor at the center of like a you know creepy hospital drama type thing. Uh, it's sort of a story within a story about uh, yeah this show called Dark Place, and it's amazing and terrible. But Chenard, I swear to God, yeah, it's like that's the first thing I thought, of, and that <laughs> it may just all tie together. That's sort of what Matt Berry was doing too, but. Uh, but yeah, so he's so we we get this shot of this guy and he's in scrubs and you know he's using a, a, a brain saw, a worry brain saw, which will come back later in the film to dice around in some lady's uh, brain while giving a lecture. And the lecture, he immediately like like let's just jump into thematics. He's like he talks about the concept of the mind as a puzzle, a labyrinth in like his first line. And so it's <laughs> like we know okay, this is this this guy's gonna tie in here somehow. Plus the skin flaps on the lady whose brain he was doing that kind of felt like it was, however, accidentally foreshadowing, uh, what's her name who shows up in three, I think, uh, Angelique, the Cenobite. Four. Four. Four? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was actually, I I was actually surprised. That was a really good, uh, I don't want to say excuse, but it was a really good time to just stick an effects shot in there. Cause you know, they, you see him going into the brain and you see the stretched out skin. And that was, I thought that was pretty cool that they were just like, they, they would use that. You know, like you said, it was foreshadowing towards the uh, towards later when he becomes a Cenobite, and um, you know his whole thing is like all that medical equipment. Um, but yeah, that was that was a pretty cool time to have yeah. an effect shot. And it's nice and that he's, they, hmm? yeah, I like that they set up in a context where they could have some sort of gruesome effects, but suggest that there's normalcy to it, even though it feels creepy. Yeah, so it was it was nicely constructed. Right? Is it? No, no, it, it's not implied that that's that's Tiffany, right? No, 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 no. No, okay. No, this is some lady yeah. who we don't see otherwise, but definitely wasn't. Uh, yeah. 
Just so some lady getting her brain cut up a little bit. Right. And and he's chewing the scenery. He is chewing. The, the, he spends the whole movie just chewing the hell out of the scenery. I, I think one of his lines is uh, when he's walking down with um, oh what the hell replacement Cusack? Uh, Steve Kyle. Is oh Kyle. Kyle? Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. When yeah. He's, and he's just like, I wonder what tales of wonder she has for us, or something <laughs> along those lines. Just just really just it's, really hamming it up. Yeah. There's there's no scene in this film that the man can be accused of underacting. And I think that's appropriate to the film, so I'm not. Uh, I'm not even criticizing. He he is. He knows exactly what movie he's in, and he <laughs> is in it to the hilt. Yeah. Uh, but like, oh. yeah. So we get him. Uh, we get Kirsty freaking out about how you have to get rid of the mattress so Julia can't come back, which seems kind of on the nose. But at the same time, I guess she did just see her uncle come back. So if anybody's there's, gonna, yeah, there's she's got a bunch of knowledge that she, yeah. that she wouldn't. She refers to them as Cenobites, and I don't actually remember her ever finding out that's what they were called. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she did or not because like Frank definitely told Julia, but I'm not sure there was ever. Maybe maybe Pinhead mentioned it uh, when she showed up. Well, when she opened the box in the hospital in the right. first film, but uh, yeah, I don't remember either. She definitely, she really, she is very savvy to the underlying mythology of this film and the previous film. By the time this film happens, somehow that it is, really which is sort six of hours later. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm willing to make an argument here, and this this sort of came up in the uh, some of this came up, I think, in the, in the Metafilter thread uh, from a couple weeks ago. Um, or at least my thinking that came out of that is I think maybe there's an argument that uh, uh, so 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 it, it, at the end okay <laughs> <laughs> this may be a massive digression but at the beginning of the first film Frank buys the box uh, from the creepy random Asian dude and mm-hmm. and then the Asian dude says, well, the box is yours. And, you know, he walks off it. And then the guy says, under his breath, it always was, which implies this sort of, like, I think I said before, almost Lord of the Ringish, you know, one ring finding its, you know, proper, uh, delivery boy sort of thing to get back to Mordor. You know, the box finds the people it should find. And so that Kirsty ended up with it at one point in the first film is not so much a weird random accident as the box finding another person supposed to find. Right. So maybe kirsty has got that natural inclination towards sort of like the puzzle solving and, and getting into all this. And that's why this stuff is happening. And so it makes sense that she sort of puts this stuff together in her head because she's naturally disposed to put the puzzle together, so to speak. So uh, she's the key master, basically. I, I think. Or or A. You know, we, we could argue that there's just uh, lots of people on Earth who are savants who have this natural inclination towards solving the box. And those are the people who are going to connect with it. So maybe she's one of those people just maybe maybe by nature of chance or or by heritage if like it's something that is in the blood if you will right. what with frank being into it and julie establishing herself in this film as having a strong uh inclination towards this stuff a strong facility for the whole shenanigans uh we're what like 10 minutes in the film now <laughs> <laughs> i guess we're setting up a lot of stuff that we, comes back. I, I think that was more uh world building that was actually put into the movie your your that 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 little explanation just that, now was probably more than this movie. I I believe this was green lit before they even finished shooting the first one. I wouldn't be well. Yeah, I mean the first one came out in eighty seven. This came out in eighty eight, and this had a lot of production stuff put into it. I think so. It had to be a real fast turnaround. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Oh, so um. Hang on. This so. Then is wait and is this now when Julia comes back? Or uh, not not, that, yet. not yet. We've got Kirsty shouting that you know at at Shenard that you know right destroy the mattress, destroy the mattress, destroy the mattress. You know 
Uh, and Kyle, then we have a little scene with Kyle where he's like, Hey, I'm Kyle McRae. Call me Kyle. And you know, he's, yeah, he's the new sympathetic young man. Uh, and then it's a little bit later that, that, that we get the Julia stuff. Cause, right. uh, we get a nice matte painting of a thunderstorm outside the hospital. Just so you know, it's a creepy hospital. <laughs> uh, we get, uh, uh, we get uh, Kirsty wandering out of her room and seeing Tiffany in the next room, and that uh, was a beautiful shot. Actually, um, there, there's a couple of like very, very nice, um, like lingering, like almost completely still shots, and that was one of them of just Tiffany uh, sitting on the floor with a puzzle box, not like not Lamarchand's box, but just like a some puzzle yeah. that is in box shape, and that was a yeah, really like a six well piece shot wooden scene. carpenter's puzzle, putting right. pieces together, sort of three D Tetris. And yeah, so Kyle introduces uh, Kirsty to the concept of Tiffany and that she's all she does is solve puzzles. Yeah. Wink. Yeah, I know. It's like that's that was kind of nice. Okay, so Shenard drafted this girl specifically for her puzzling ability, and so how did that work? And why is she such a mystery? Uh, but then, so what happens next is Kirsty goes back to her room and she declines the offer of some pills to help her sleep from Doctor Handsome Kyle. And, pills uh, in an unlabeled bottle. Yeah, here, take some of these. Like unlabeled. He's just like, uh, just take a couple, you know. And this is just He's sort like, of like thought, wait, back I... to the uh, to the scene in the first one where um, where Cusack was just like, here, drink more. With just like men being kind of creepy to Kirsty, yeah, involving that... like intoxicating substances just being played for laughs because she closes the door on Kyle and he's just like, I was just trying to help. Yep. Um, maybe yeah. She, yeah. Maybe it's not so much Kyle she's rejecting as the uh, recurring uh, power structure imbalances in her uh, romantic life. Uh, but yeah, so she she doesn't take the sleeping pills, and then she has weird dream type situation, and we get cross cuts of Tiffany fiddling with that wooden puzzle, and then uh, is it the radiator? The radiator gets all steamy, and I'm thinking, oh, are we doing a racer head here? That's yeah. Uh, that's exactly what I thought. I, I I was wondering if that was just like a little callback to just the radiator and a racer head, because that's the only other like horror radiator that I can think of. Yeah. Um, if you know of other horror radiators, call in now. Um, <laughs> seriously, I'm driving it into the ground. <laughs> this podcast sponsored by Frank's Radiator Repair. More people are going to stop listening to this because I won't stop making that joke than anything else we say. Uh, if you'd like Josh to stop making these <laughs> jokes, call in now. <laughs> so, 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 but, but, so we, we have Kirsty sees a skinless dude who she clearly assumes is her dead dad, Larry, which is fair because Larry was skinless and dead uh, at the uh, tail end of the first film. And so we see skinless dude writing, I am in hell, help me in blood on the wall. And I don't even like the way that scans. I am in yeah. hell, help me. And, and the, the words are all sort of like um, at, at, at different heights. It took me a couple of seconds to figure out. It's like, yeah, figure out exactly what that said. Yeah, um, it, was not, it was not good draftsmanship. But so she assumes this is her dead dad. Asking for help from hell, which is, I think, a fair assumption because that's where she is. Yeah. But uh, but you think he'd he'd have a more like a clear message, like how she can help, or you know what it is she can do, like get the box. It's like free me with the box. It's like I'm in hell. Help me. It's like well, everybody else in hell needs <laughs> probably needs help too. How do I get you out? Yeah. But then she she walks up to the message and she she touches the blood and then she puts some blood on her lips and uh, it, it, this this is a recurring thing. Yeah, in, first it was the first movie, fingers in mouths. It's it was there was a couple of scenes like that in the first one where um what do you call it where Frank sticks his 
finger into Julia's mouth when he's first seducing her, her taking his fingers into his mouth. Yeah, they sort of do a lip-rubbing thing that's sort of like yeah. the cementing of their understanding. Right. There's a Cenobite who jams a couple fingers on yeah, his chatter. And jams then, a couple fingers so, in Christie's mouth. In, in this movie, I, I can't figure out if, um, I, if it was either director or writer. just thought, it's like, you know what's sexy? People getting fingers shoved in the mouth. And they, there was like... For, First, this movie had a montage, basically what amounts to a montage of the finger-in-mouth scenes <laughs> it's from the first one, and then it had a bunch of their own. He was just like, I, I'm going to keep this going. Yep. And it's, it's, it's a little inexplicable, but, you know, hey. Instead, I'm, I'm instead of calling it Hellraiser, they should have called it Mouthfinger. <laughs> this ain't Mouthfinger. Maybe we can, do a, we can do a super cut, although it already appeared in this movie at least twice, yeah. so uh, they were ahead of Our the game. Our super cut will include a super cut. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, and then blah, blah, blah. So we also get Chouinard, we get some more development for him, him, because he goes down into the maintenance sub-basement of the Chouinard Institute, uh, and there's just... It takes place during the opening of uh, Amadeus. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like a steampunk villain's lair, where there's just, like, pipes dripping and steam, and people running around screaming, and people locked in private cells screaming, and... And like, if anybody ever came down here, they would call the cops. I mean, this is this is like a bad caricature of the notion of like bedlam, you yeah. know, in the 17th century. Like, it's no one would ever see this and not say something has gone profoundly wrong. So we've established this guy's evil, but we've also established that no one ever comes down here. It's there's not a lock on the elevator panel. He's not I like he, he doesn't put I, a code in. He just yeah, had to tell the janitorial a, staff, "Don't go to the maintenance level." Yeah. There's not a lot of oversight of the Chouinard Institute, I don't think, because he kills a lot of his patients. Yeah. And you'd think somebody would be like, so why do you have like 10 less people in here than you did before? So here's my theory. The people who disappear are the people down in the horrible sub-basement layer. Mm-hmm. And the only people down in the sub-basement layer, I'm going to tie it all together, are janitors who ignored the directive <laughs> not to go down there. So he then locks them up, does something terrible to them to induce psychosis, and then just keeps them around until he needs to get a mattress sweat that's There's a completely that's whole... different horror movie going on down there. <laughs> seriously uh so he's got his crazy basement and uh first uh the, the first cheap scare was in that basement where he uh opens up the little window and some guy's face is right there oh, and he yeah. yells and it's like oh hey i'm that okay it, it's just so obviously a cheap scare and it feels out of place because the first movie really didn't have a lot of those yeah like maybe one or two but even then they weren't like surprise scares there was like surprise is something really fucking creepy like the uh the the maggot mouth body in the closet but this is just a guy's face and he's yelling yep but then at least he opens a couple more private cells and we get more variations of that so we know it's sort of like it's a collection not just this one crazy guy it's like doing a pokemon thing with these with these dudes is that guy with the like onk tattooed on one side of his skull and a cross on the other is that or was the crosses on both sides of his skull i don't remember i didn't notice the uh I didn't Vampire notice the detail there. That's uh, interesting. He's also waving a cross around. Oh, geez. Yeah, I totally didn't pick up on that at all. I'll have to revisit that sometime. Uh, and then we get Kyle over here. This, I, I, this, this is so... Kyle is just like... We get no back history to suggest that Kyle is deeply skeptical of this doctor. So Kyle just it is implied in the film to like immediately be like, Hey, this girl who's saying insane things, she's probably onto, onto something. And I bet the doctor that I work for 
who's an established professional with presumably good reputation is up to something. You know, it's like, it's such a weird jump he makes, but he does overhear the doctor saying, Hey, yes, no, really the mattress, bring it to the house, not the hospital. Bring the mattress yeah, to the that house. Yeah, that was, that was hilarious just because I wanted to see what happens if this movie just turns into, you know, just accidentally turns into a comedy and they bring the mattress to the hospital. Whoops. <laughs> and it's the two movers and they yeah. fucked up and the, he had like the most suspiciously loud whispered conversation ever. <laughs> Just close your fucking door. Who's going to, yeah, I mean, it's, but, and, and that, that is enough. That is enough that Kyle decides to break into his house at night. His awesome house. That guy, yes, which, Chouinard has a fucking awesome house. Say what you will about him. He's, yeah, he, he had a nice, he had a nice pad. But yeah, so Kyle overhears that and then we get that pile of flashbacks and yeah, the, the wedding and, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and oh, but I want to say at the end of that flashback sequence, we see a bit of the Frank being regrown from goo thing, and right. he does the sort of pushing up on his skeletal arms and he's shouting thing. Uh, but in the first film, it was clearly a solar sort of full grown adult hell shout. Yes, and this and one, it's a baby crying. Yeah, like um, like in her dream in the first one. Yeah, yeah. So, there's, um, so maybe it's maybe it's just emphasizing the concept of rebirth. I don't know. Yeah, because all because when Julia uh, comes back, there's baby noises too. Yeah, and I think there was at least a couple of baby noises with Pinhead, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. But yeah, yeah I don't they, remember. Yeah, there there was some baby stuff as well. There was. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, and this is where the uh, hell was what he wanted, and hell was what he got. Line was, oh, and that's right. what sampled in a in a chains <laughs> by Gatekeeper. We should. We should. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, and the jazz hands uh, thing. So there was a there's a quick uh, shot of Frank from the first movie when he's still uh, fleshless. Which, you know, he still has no flesh, so he's he's you know bloody Frank, but he's wearing a suit. And then there's just like a quick shot of him, and I shit you not, it's just like jazz hands. It's like, hey, Kirsty, <laughs> it's Uncle Frank. I, ah. I, yeah, I really got to take a screenshot of that. Uh, you got. Make just it remind me so I could, yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And this is when the uh, everybody's uh, finger in the mouth montage happens. Yes, uh, and then so th- and then we cut back to Kyle. So Kyle does in fact watch the doctor leave his house uh, mm-hmm. after we get a slow crawl through do- the doc's really nice, really spartanly decorated house. And Kyle watches him leave, is hiding in the bushes, and then goes breaks in with a two inch long screwdriver, which he inserts into a skeleton. <laughs> lock hole and then just sort of pushes down that's the lock picked there you go it's done that's I've all lived it in takes places like that unfortunately <laughs> uh, yeah i'm just i'm just saying if you're, if you're basically just bust the door open yeah. you know bust the door open don't try and tell me that he's being a ninja with a screwdriver because it just looks ridiculous <laughs> but then he goes in and he looks around he sees the doc's office and it's full of documentation of of like the Le Marchand box and, and stuff like that. And then he's got three boxes under glass, which is yeah. kind of awesome. Bell jars. And this, this is, I, this, I actually really commend the, uh, the cinematography on this because all of the scenes in, um, in Chenard's office, there's, they never actually like, you know, explicitly point to it, but there's just like little creepy thing, bigger, creepy thing, really creepy thing where, you know, at first it, it starts off with, and then the only thing you could really see, like the, he's got the crazy curtains, which are really fucking weird looking curtains with these <laughs> sort of uh, like stick designs, like white stick designs and black curtains. And then um, there's a photo of uh, Aliester Crowley in the background, like that famous uh, photo of him in the triangle hat. Uh, and then there's there's a couple of uh, pictures of um, just uh, they're like 
anatomical diagrams from like the Enlightenment period of uh, just faces with all the skin peeled away, so you can yeah. see all the musculature. And then there's you know just like another uh, there's you know that you see it from another angle, and he's got this giant Egyptian mural on his wall um, that's got like a little mirror in it, which turns out to be a two-way mirror because, uh-huh. you know, why not? And then there's, a, sometime later in the movie, there's another shot when they finally get Tiffany into that office, where he's got an entire preserved headless corpse <laughs> in his office. Just, it's, just I, there I, on the floor. I, did, I, you, did you see that? I, I, I don't even remember seeing that. I, I, I was struck by how much stuff there was in that office. I loved that office set specifically because it was just so chock full of, yeah. like, if you want to sell, this guy is crazy obsessed about this stuff. That office was great. It, it, I feel like it really sort of worked for doing that because that was like the creepiest, you know, place on earth in the film because it's like, oh yeah. my gosh, this is this is that obsession thing that Clive Barker is always working into his stories. This yep. is that idea of spending years digging at a thing. Um so, yeah, I love that no, there was, really there was uh, three boxes though. It's just uh, have you ever played uh, Fallout Two or Fallout One? Yeah. So you, in the in the first Fallout, your your whole thing is that you got to find this water chip because it's like that's like the the one like artifact that will save your people. And then Fallout Two, um, just you open up a random locker toward the end game, and there's like, like hundreds of water of chip in there. It just sort of reminded me like that. Where in the first movie, it's like you know this is the box. You know this this will bring hell to earth. And Lamarshan's got like a shitload of them like by the by the end of the movie he's got like dozens and dozens of these boxes yeah no, I or thought at it was, least I, a dozen yeah I, th- I thought it was interesting to suggest that oh, okay maybe maybe this isn't just the one thing that ever existed it's actually you know there's and, and the question is are these other boxes are they also totally functional the martians boxes or are they weird knockoffs that the guy found and then established he couldn't do anything with it because they were imitators like we don't really get any well, of that, that from the film but, but because at, at all the way at the end um when all of the patients are sitting and they're holding the boxes and there's hooks coming out of their boxes into their faces oh god that's right so I those are all functioning boxes. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, I, you know, honestly, I think, I think I may have slightly lost my patience, uh, with the film <laughs> when I got to that scene. <laughs> and so I was just reading, it's like, okay, that's something else someone thought was interesting. And I didn't really read it critically, but that is a good point that does taken with a straight, if hook rendered face, uh, suggest, uh, yeah, a proliferation of functioning, uh, boxes. That's interesting. And he's got a photo of, a. What was Pinhead's name when he was human? Uh, Elliot Spencer. Yeah, he's got a photo of Spencer. Which is so exciting, because he has like, all of a sudden, okay, so not only do we know that Pinhead's got a backstory, but we know that his backstory is, to someone else sort of tracking this stuff, at least discoverable. Like, obviously, Shenard is on the fucking money in his pursuit of this, that he managed to track back this random World War I officer, you know, as right. a connection in this whole grand puzzle, if you will. Uh so yeah, I thought that was great. I was so excited when I saw it. I was like, yeah, we're going to get into this shit. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then um so so this so Kyle's skulking around and then um Chenard leads in one of his uh basement people. Yeah. And how did he get that guy from the hospital? Like what do you do? Is like you show up with this guy, is, does he have a secret exit from the basement cuz like he's got hey, guy who won't stop screaming and is covered in sores. Let's go get some ice Let's cream. Let's go sneak you out of this hospital. Yeah. So I don't know how that worked. But anyway, yeah, he shows up with that guy. So you know who that actor is by the way? No. That is um well, the the actor himself, I have no idea who it is, but the he he was also uh Skinless Frank. Ah, there we go. Yeah, Cause, yeah because yeah, Skinless Frank and actual Frank were two different guys, which yeah, I, they, we probably discussed that. 
I think so, yeah. I, it turns out there's actually a reason for that, was that in order to uh, have the skinless makeup look good and correct, they had to have a guy that's skinnier than yeah, makes Frank sense, was. Because they had to lay it all on top instead of... Yeah. Right, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that was... So he, he had another part in this. Yay. And he, you know, he loved that part. He was, whoo. He was, he was screwing up a storm and... yeah. And uh, oh, more maggots! That's recurring, uh, oh. recurring thing. Lots of lots of maggots and bugs that he, he he hallucinates on his flesh. And maggots are a larval form, which takes us back to the notion of you know the circle of of life and rebirth and the nature of like starting a new life as a new form, which is sort of like the cenobite thing as a post-human. So, uh, you know, a beautiful butterfly is the uh, the the post uh, caterpillar uh, form of something that's transformed, etc. Not that maggots are caterpillars, but you know. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm not an entomologist. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So, so the doc uses him as a blood supply, puts him on the mm-hmm. mattress that Julia died on. And, and I love the fact that in the first movie, Frank slowly, slowly rebuilds himself mm-hmm. agonizingly after getting some blood dripped on the floor in the attic where he died. In this right. one, the crazy dude with the maggot obsession slices himself open and bleeds on a mattress for like five seconds. And then, and then boom, Julia's, Johnny. Yeah, Ju- Julia's arms just burst out of the mattress and her legs and her face. And she, yeah, she's just right there. I think I figured this out though. I think what they're regenerating from is just trace parts of their own like blood and viscera. So with Frank, he had died so long ago that most of that stuff evaporated that whatever that the blood dripped on to revive his like blood, it took a while because it had to, you know, multiply and, and eventually turn into that. With Julia, that whole mattress which is soaked in her blood from like several hours ago. So she probably, you know, had a faster time regenerating herself. Yeah. So I, 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 like, I like that. I think that's a good angle, but I have a different take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is jumping to later in the film, uh, Julia, when she's basically getting ready to chuck Chenard into the Cenobite firebox oh, out in the hellscape, uh, she's sort of like turning on him and laughing at him. And she's being like, you know, why do you think they let me come back? I came for souls and I got yours. Uh, so my thinking is she was already dealing from the uh-huh. hell side with the, hey, look, you know, she's seen what happened to Frank. She knows she's there now. She wants a better deal out of this. And she's really being foot forward on this stuff. She's like, hey, look, pinhead, bro, no hard feelings. You strip my skin off and I'm in hell, but we can make a deal. You let me go back. I'll get you some choice, you know, evil soul. Uh, we can we can get some synergy going here. And so she's just. I will wh- need a hammer, though. <laughs> but yeah, you so have any of those down here? And the answer is apparently no. Yeah, no, you gotta you gotta find other tools. It's like traveling back in time in the Terminator thing. You gotta go naked. No, no other way. <laughs> Hammers can't cross the dimension of of uh, existence. So, so yeah, uh, I, actually, I, think, I think she was just she yeah. was ready to pounce. That's my take. She I, she had clearance. She was greenlit, and she was just waiting for that blood to hit the mattress. She probably didn't even do the blood. She was just like trying to let the doctor think he knew what was going on. Right. That there's actually uh, there's there's some credence to that because um, like I said, this movie was greenlit uh, before the first one even finished shooting. Um, and Julia, that, you know, they didn't know how long it was, they, they knew it was going to be a horror franchise. They didn't know if they were just going to get to make two, three, but they knew they were going to, they were going to try to make as many sequels as you can, because that's what you did with horror movies right? then and now basically. Um, but she was originally going to be the primary antagonist of the Hellraiser series. 
And um, this movie was shot under that assumption and like written and shot under that assumption. And it was only after um, that they, I assume they got a lot of the shooting and at least all of the scripting done that, you know, uh, Pinhead became like really, really popular. Yeah. Um, and then, so there's, there's a lot of things in this movie that, uh, that are supposed to be pointing to Julia as the primary antagonist yeah. of the series. Which I totally buy, because again, she's like, she's on top of this. She feels yep. like, it felt to me, especially looking through this a second time, that Julia really, she had her shit together in a way that Frank never did, even though Frank was right. our introduction to this whole concept. So I think that's, I think that's, that's really interesting. That, that, that actually plays well into the feeling I was getting looking at it, so... So yeah, I also want to talk about Chenard briefly because he's he's basically the primary antagonist of this film, as it turns out, uh, in a couple different stages. Uh, but he does have these weird moments of hesitation, like right before he gives the crazy dude the razor to kill himself on the mattress. He right. definitely has this sort of you could see him pausing and looking like he's not quite sure about this. So there's that sense that like as much as this guy is fucking awful and redeems the notion of him as as, as awful throughout the film, he's not quite like stone cold sociopath he's not like oh well here we go he's he's feeling it he's just going forward with his bad right. decisions in pursuit of the thing he's obsessed with the thing is that julia was the same way because we had that the like be right before her first kill where she had that like moment of hesitation and the guy yelled at her and she was like we're done here yep and then you know killed him so uh yeah there's that pause before crossing the the, the threshold which is interesting i was just reading the novella uh the hellbound heart um mm-hmm. and there's that in the opening of that, when Frank has his encounter with the Cenobites, it's interesting compared to the film where we just see him get the box, he opens it up, and then he's doomed. In the in the story that Barker originally wrote, he opens the box and the Cenobites show up, and they're totally not what he was expecting. He was expecting basically a crazy, sexy orgy, and then yeah. he sees these like dead-skinned, horrible-looking, humorless dudes, and it's like, oh, fuck, what did I get myself into? But then they still – they ask him like three or four times. They're like, are you sure? And it's like, ah. Yeah. Oh. I, I think so. And there's like, are you really sure? Like they're actually putting it out there. Like, don't come fucking crying to me. It's not like you <laughs> open the box. Now you're in hell. They were like, eh, you know, we're going to take you to a dimension beyond uh, human experience and pain and suffering. Right. He's like, oh, okay. You know? So maybe like that, that sort of ties into both Julia's hesitation before the first kill in the first film. And also the doctor's slight hesitation before he hands over the razor in this one. And he continues to be tentative after Julia comes back, too. He, yeah. he, keeps, he keeps buying in, but there's always this sort of... He looks pretty on tilt for much of this as Julia comes back. Uh, yeah, the, the, the whole time when they're watching uh, Tiffany from behind the two-way mirror, he's definitely like, he's just like, what, what am I doing right now? Yeah. And Julia's just egging him on. Yep. Oh, another, another little detail along those same lines. In the original, when Julia Ferns sees Frank in the attic... His basically first thing he says to her is, don't look at me. Like, he understands that he looks horrible, and he's, like, that's his first statement, even though eventually Mm -hmm. he he tends to get sort of, like, sexy and assertive despite still being skinless. But that's his first thing. And Julia, the first thing she says to the doctor while being in a similarly terrible state is, don't be scared of me. Like, she's, again, she's owning it. She's like, hey, I'm going to take control of this whole situation. So, scheming. Scheming Julia. Um, Also, when she shortly thereafter is... uh, uh, wearing a white suit somewhat spattered with the blood of her own body from putting it on. Mm-hmm. So she's walking around skinless with a you know white jacket open yep. and uh, pants on. I thought she really sort of wore that well. That looked like a very uh, yeah. solid And it was outfit. a callback to the first movie because Frank did that same thing for yeah. a while. Yeah. 
Although I don't know, it's like she's like, well, I'm bleeding everywhere. Basically, I'm gonna pick the white suit. <laughs> I think, yeah, that'll be the least conspicuous. I, I, I think I think this was a uh, form over function. She really yeah. she was making the aesthetic choice. She's like, I want to oh, look striking. One uh, one funny thing, right after Julia comes back, um, Chenard. Uh, I think I don't remember if he like squats down to the mattress or something, but he definitely like pokes around it just to make sure it's not you know the old fake mattress trick. Because um, yeah, he's he. Uh, I thought that was kind of cute that he was just sort of poking around the mattress just to make sure that she really did come out of I th- there. I think I know, that's not how I read that scene. What he did, she was no. like saying, "Help me!" She'd sucked the guy, the, the 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 crazy razor guy. She'd sucked some blood out of him and fallen off the mattress, and then she was like, "Help me!" And then he, we get a close shot of his foot, sort of pushing the mattress and it does look tentative but i think he was pushing it towards her to help her get back on it even though it really doesn't work very well i think that was the intent there like that was him making the first step to engage her and be like yes i will meet you halfway on this and so he sort of shoved the bloody mattress towards her like that was some sort of sanctum for her to return to which i I don't think it was communicated well but that was the read i got from it that's what i thought they were trying to do there i could yeah i could actually I, i could see that um and then yes, yeah, so just and then and then they're in his living room, right, where she's uh, standing in front of the mirror, waiting for somebody to notice her so she could scream and smash the mirror. <laughs> yep. Just she's yep. like, where is this guy? I, I yeah. have nothing to do. Then she puts on uh, her suit and and, mm-hmm. and drinks some wine and thinks wine's great. And also, there's a crosscut there back to Tiffany in the hospital putting together a sort of Tangram Escherish bird from parts, yeah. which I thought was like, okay, we got some. The reassembly, okay, yes. There was a bunch of, like, Asherian stuff in this. Um, there was that. There was a couple of paintings, um, just all, like, a lot of the uh, the labyrinth itself. And uh, Oh, and there was, um, so yeah, back in Chenard's apartment, there's, like, a single red handprint on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> which, first of all, it's like, they, you know, they never explain why there's only one. Like, if she fell, you know, if she fell over and had to steady herself or something, but there's just one very neat handprint. And it just reminded me of nothing else but just the, like, um, com- like unreferenced blue handprints in Arrested Development. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of blue paint and a pair of cutoffs. Yeah, we got a guy like that. So, so yeah, it's just like this one. It would be funny if they just like if this turned into you know a screwball comedy of just like their like Chenard and Julia's romance, and just like there's more and more handprints across the house. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna read into it. I'm gonna say there was a deleted scene where we saw the immediate uh, downhill return to the bickering cycle of Julia in a relationship where uh, <laughs> she put her handprint on the wall and Chenard. You know, they're they're having this incredibly intense coming to grips with each other as these strange beings coexisting. And then she puts her hand on the wall. And he's like, not the wall. And she pulls it off and she's like, Oh, well, blah. and then that's uh, like, maybe before that she was totally going to try and be like in it for real with Shannara. Yeah. But after that, she's like, I'm taking you to hell. They've got a, they've got a very British thing going between them. Um, that, Oh yeah. But yeah, um, I love the fact that like the first thing that like the, the first three things that Julia like really fucking wanted getting out of hell is liquor, smokes and fucking. Yep. Like I you'd think those would be the three things in hell that would be the easiest to get. <laughs> we've, we've got some serious theology to get into there a little bit later on. Actually, the nature of, of hell in this context yeah. is uh, an interesting one that I think we can read a lot of different ways into. Uh, but that sort of ties to it a bit. So um, then they, um, yeah. So the, then they invisible man her. They uh, they wrap her in bandages. Um, they never make it clear why. Just just I guess as a Comfort? a temporary skin. Yeah. yeah. Well, she said she was cold. So oh, that's that right. That's it. right. Yeah. So um, and you know they have like the the the, the close in shot of them like wrapping her, 
and they show them wrapping both arms, which I thought this this is like really nitpicky, but I thought that was a little. Um, they didn't need that shot in there. When that, you, you see one arm than, being yeah. wrapped, you can sort of picture what the what, what it looks like on the other one. You don't need to show them both. Yeah, again with the padding, that felt a little bit like, and yeah. maybe it was trying to suggest a sort of intimacy there. Like this was a sign of you know the two of them sharing an intimate moment, so they drew it out to you know right. further underscore that. And, and and shortly after that, she's all grabbing his hand and sticking out her. Uh, bandage covered uh, skinless breast and and leaves it on there just a little too long <laughs> just long enough for it to be, turn up funny also I realized why um, in you know the old Invisible Man movie I realized why they put the glasses on him and it, well sort of um, at least I realized that they really should have put the glasses on her in this because when they started kissing and stuff it just looked like he was making out with a raccoon <laughs> <laughs> because you know look. she's got like a little bandit mask uh, of like blood under the or under the bandages, and she she looked like a like a raccoon mummy. Yep, I like how assertive she is in in seducing him too. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a nice it's a nice uh, parallel to how stumbling. Uh, her sort of interaction with the murder bait dudes in the first film was like, she's something about being killed at going to hell and being tortured uh, by demons from a, a, a an unfathomable uh, plane of existence, I think really uh, gave her an attitude adjustment. And she's like, okay, no, I've got my confidence back now that I'm, she is absolutely in her, in her element through this yeah. entire movie. Yeah. She is, you know, kicking ass and taking names. Um, yes. There's oh, that. I want, oh, so I've got, I've got mm-hmm. a whole, I've got a whole thesis on this whole, analog thing with julia is the analog for frank uh the mm-hmm. argument i've made so far uh but then spoiler alert for the end of the film after julia loses her skin down in hell kirsty steals julia's skin yes and, and so she there, there's an echo of frank wearing larry's skin from the climax of the first film we have mm-hmm. kirsty wearing julia's film as a climax to the second film which i thought I, I i thought was a nice parallel there yeah uh and i feel like if they took that farther that could be another basis for like a shakespearean farce uh where you'd have various couples tearing off and wearing one another's skin while playing (laughs) weird flirtation games and so on so i I think maybe we've got a script concept for hellraiser 10 now i think it needs to be like a a a parisian sex romp in uh various people's mistaken skin and whatnot and uh, i think there's potential there it's got to have one of those shots where somebody like goes to the to, to to their closet of skins and puts them on, and their friends are there just like shaking their heads. And they put on she puts on that one perfect skin. They're like, yeah. <laughs> oh god, there's got to be a, there's got to be the right sort of '80s pop song about uh, something being skin deep or uh, funky sound by lip sync. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I think that could yeah. work. I think that could totally work. It's way better than my Batman thing. Uh, <laughs> Let's we'll so, talk about oh, that yeah, some and the other fact time. that she looks like a mummy also matches uh, that big mummy mural. Oh, the big like uh, astrology yeah, mural in Chenard's office. That's a maybe good that, point. Maybe he had the bandages, you know, the whole time because he's also got a mummy thing going he's, on. He's always been, yeah. It's like if he couldn't manage to unlock the door to hell, he could at least you know find someone who's willing to let him wrap him up in uh, medical bandage or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, see. So, so you have so we have that that courtship scene, and then it's back to Kirsty and Kyle, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, where he's just like, I got to get you out of here. And then he says, I can get you clothes. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Normal people can't get you clothes. And, and, yeah, uh, it's like, well, I, I, I didn't know that, you know, get, getting clothes was something that, uh, that, that a doctor could easily do. But it reminded me, have you, have you seen Eyes Wide Shut? Yes. So yes, throughout the yes. entirety of Eyes Wide Shut, Tom Cruise, uh, I don't remember his character's name, is going around and he's 
getting trying to get people to do things by flashing his medical ID and saying I'm a doctor yeah. as if that gives him some sort of authority and that's what this reminded me of it's like no I I can help I'm a doctor get this woman some clothes <laughs> I can I I uh, I can help you get clothes I have hands uh yeah I'm a doctor not a tailor What is that guy from by the way the guy who played Kyle, Kyle. I recognize him, but I couldn't uh, place it at the time. He's been. I'll, I'll look it up. You keep talking. I'll find out. Oh, okay. I was doing the same thing. All right. So, um, so yeah. So he's trying to get the get Christie out of there. Um, oh yeah. So the the incredibly British love affair between uh, Julia and Chenard. They spent the whole time just making out, just making out uh, with their bodies pretty far from each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that. Oh, okay. So, uh, Chenard then takes her up to his attic where he has, I guess, kidnapped a bunch of his patients, which you, you, you'd think somebody there, a nurse, any of the numerous doctors in this thing being like, all right, you keep taking these people home with you and they keep not coming back. What's going on? Are you losing them? Are they running away? Do you need more security? It is a little troubling. And, you know, you, maybe, maybe most of the people- He's got about half a dozen people up there. Yeah. May, maybe they're all in on it. Maybe they're all members of the same weird cult or something. Maybe he's like a, a high-ranking Scientologist or something, and they're all like a rung under, so like, oh, no, they're, they're taken to be cleared. You know, some sort of weird buy-in that they have where they can't really question these things. Right. Um, so yeah, so then there's uh, there's a crucified woman. Well, sort of crucified. I mean, is she tied to a crucifix or I think just a pole? Um, but crucifixion, actually, like the crucifixion imagery, becomes a big thing in uh, in, in the in the series later on. A surprise. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Julia uh, drains her, and so you see the you you get a little better idea of what they do because she sticks her hand like into like the back of the skull, I guess where that soft part is, and just like really gets in there and sucks out her life force. And Julia's hand comes back out, and it's got fake nails on it. It's got, well, it has skin and fake nails. Julia comes back. Like, this is, you know, Julia Stylewatch, Hellraiser 2. She comes back. For some reason, Chenard had both a dress and heels for her. And she comes back, nails, with her makeup done, her hair's up. She looks fucking fantastic. Yeah, she, she, looks, she looks so much more glammed out in this than yeah. she did in the original, which, which maybe it's... Again, maybe and, this is and she an expression shot of the soft focus, like the first shot of her, like after getting her skin back, and then they have like the the scene where he removes the bandages, which is was totally this. I'm convinced was just an homage to the uh, Eye of the Beholder, Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but they could not figure out how to get it to move off the camera, so it was just him like making hand motions in front of the camera. Um, but yeah, she comes back glammed out and shot in soft focus, glowing, uh, actually looking. I mean, she, she was still like looking a little, a little war painty because it was a, it was a lot of makeup. Uh, but I, again, still late eighties movie. It, it looked so much better than the last one. Yeah, so much better. Um, and this is actually really funny because all the way at the end, remember when you say that Kirsty uh, steals her skin? Kirsty also takes her dress. And <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. You're right. Because there's like, you know, high heel clopping noises when they're running away. It's like, did you really take the time to take off your shoe socks, put on Julia's shoes, which, and I guess she had the same shoe size as you, and that was pretty lucky. Um, but, you know, you can't, you can't wear a dress like that and just have sneakers on. So. Maybe, maybe that's why Julia dislikes uh, Kirsty so much, even in the first film, was Kirsty borrowed some of her clothes without asking. Yeah. And, like, and that, was, that was it. It's like, I may be your stepmother, but, you know, I'm not your, you know, personal outfitter, you know. Yeah. 
And so that was the ultimate revenge. That's a little bit of subtext in the film that we don't get to see. Um, so I'm trying to see. So, uh, so, so she comes back. Um, and then, uh, how, how does Kyle end up up there? Oh, wait, hang on. Oh yeah. This is after, this is after Kyle and Julia break into Shenard's house, right? Cause they right. both break in there. Right. And then yeah. he's just like, I'm going to go look at the house you stay here because let's split up gang is that that's the thing to do when you're being haunted by demons. It's like, you stay here in this creepy room where I watch somebody die by yourself. I'm sure you'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, so, uh, Kyle ends up in the attic, uh, where all of this is going on. I don't remember what happened to Shinar. Do you, do you remember what happened to him at this point? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think Shinar was maybe fetching Tiffany. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. It was just like, I'm just going to let you eat. Um, I actually have a note here from when uh, Kyle encounters Julia, and all it says is, God, please, somebody kill him with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and this is, so, um, so there's actually a pretty cool shot in this, because the, the woman that Julia drained to get her skin back, um, there's she, the, the shadow of her is across the wall, and it's just like a crucified figure. That was, that was actually pretty cool, yeah. just like hanging out behind Julia. And then she says, come to mother. Which, you know, is the come yeah, to daddy thing. Exactly. The that, was, that was pretty cool. It was a nice little uh, parallel. Oh, uh, again and again, again and again with, a, with Julia mm-hmm. out franking Frank. I want to say something about the skin, though. She gets her skin back. Uh, you remember how Frank got his skin back? Yeah, she he stole Larry's. Where mm-hmm. the hell did she get her own skin from? Like, uh, and maybe this is just her knowing tricks that, that, that Frank didn't or something. But, uh, yeah, that might, that might be it. Like, the fact that she comes out of there with permission, they might have taught her all these tricks that Frank sort of had to figure out by himself. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of – that was a conspicuous difference there, that she didn't yeah. just, like, tear off some, some, some lady's skin and use that and say, oh, I feel like a whole new woman. <laughs> or, <laughs> um, man, I should uh, write these things. And then she kills Kyle. Thank God. Yep. Kyle, Kyle. I couldn't stand. There, we, uh, we didn't I figured his, out who he is, by the way. Who is he? He's Gorman from Aliens. Of course, we can't stand him. He was the he was that terrible, neurotic, useless, uh, yeah. inexperienced field officer. Okay, in Aliens. There we so go. He always was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, when he um when he walks into uh, Shenard's office for the first time, the whole time he's just like they're just like, all right, your motivation for this scene is that you're incredulous and you know four words. <laughs> he's just like, oh, Jesus damn. Christ, Jesus Christ, yeah, holy he's- shit. He just spends the whole time just going like that. It's like just just say either either shut up or say something worth saying. <laughs> But don't go around being like, oh, for like, tw- it was a good two minutes. It was, it was yeah, it was, it was sort of drawn out. Yeah. So she kills him. So she kills uh, him. She drains him. And he ends up with like pustules after getting drained, which is yeah. new. Again, um, rolling, rolling the D20. Yeah, just. Uh, <laughs> he rolled an eight. That means pustules. And then, um, so that happens. Oh, yeah. And then there's a, the, there's a payoff for the crucifixion. Um, shadow because then it actually shows you like the the woman she drained like crucified and gross and stuff which was pretty cool because you sort of didn't expect that you think it's like oh they're just going to show the shadow and it's going to be creepy but no they're just like bam pay off yeah um and then julia comes oh not julia i'm sorry kirsty is that is that when kirsty comes in and then they have like the the, yeah. the big confrontation where uh, julia gets her monologue yep about being uh the evil queen and then this is really funny where she's just like, um, 
to Kirsty, you know, she gives Kirsty this monologue about how, you know, she's like the big bad now. And she and then she was just like, you know, like, come at me, bro. Um, and Kirsty tries to, and you think Julie is about to pull like some crazy hell shit and, you know, like knock her out with chains. No, she just slaps her across the face <laughs> and knocks her down. <laughs> this is what they taught us in hell. Whack. Yep. Um, yeah. It's what we call a lich slap. <laughs> ah. Oh. So then Chenard, Chenard's brought Tiffany back to the mm-hmm. house and he gives her the box or a box, one of the boxes. This is and where you see the, uh, the, uh, like the Damien Hursty, like preserved headless body in a tank. Ah, okay. Uh, and she opens the box and then the Cenobites show up. Uh, but oh. I like. They, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I, I like the fact that they show up, but they, they totally know what's going on. They're not like, oh, little girl. Like, yeah. like, like with Kirsty, they were not sympathetic. They're like, you open the box. But they show up and Tiffany opens this and they're like, oh, she's clearly being used these, as a tool by evil Dr. Chenard. These Let's, aren't the hands that call us. Yeah, this, is, this becomes really inconsistent because sometimes they do that and sometimes <laughs> they just kill whoever unlocks the, uh, the box. It's like, you guys maybe want to... Write this down somewhere so that you know when you come in what you're supposed to do. Well, but again, maybe maybe with the notion that uh, Kirsty, for example, was fated to open the box and not just a tool of 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 chance, whereas Tiffany clearly, you know, she was the the vessel for Chenard's uh, right. fate uh, to encounter the box. Um, there's uh, there's actually there's a lot of just special effects happening as she's opening the box. Like Shenard's got like a collection of organs, like preserved organs, and then they like there's hearts and stuff and eyes. They start blinking and beating, <laughs> and then you know the books start flying around the room, and then like the window bursts and the curtains fly through it, and there are two just very very obvious strings pulling the curtain. <laughs> Like out of the window, like my fiance and I were watching this together. She was just like on the couch. She's like, "Hey," she's like, "What?" She's like, "Did you see that?" I'm like, "What?" She's like, "Rewind." During this during this scene, a fisherman outside accidentally uh, cast in the window and uh, caught himself a a curtain. They were filming. uh, What is it? Dwarf does fishing (laughs) on the block. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so the the, the the big, like, the so, you know, Chenard's office spontaneously generates these two hell doors, and then all of that shit that, like, got knocked off the wall starts, like, being blown into hell, and um, it was like that Simpsons episode where they're, where they're in the haunted house, and there's, like, that port like that portal in the kitchen, and uh, Homer just throws an orange into it, and note comes back out, says, keep your trash out of our dimension. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's there's a lot of gusts in hell. That's yeah. a recurring thing. Uh, I think some bad yeah. HVAC management. And they come in and they uh, it, it, this once again reiterates the fact that Cenobites have exactly one walking speed because you know they all come in and they're about to like you know take uh, take Tiffany down and you hear like a wait and you see like. Uh, Pinhead slowly shamble up. I, I'm starting to suspect it's because of that dress he wears that he can't Maybe. walk very fast. That, that's slow person it, down. Yeah, it was supposed to be like you know a wait, like a royal decree. It's like no, it's like you must not kill this person. But it's more like a hey, hey, you guys, come on, just hang on one sec. I, I'm wearing this outfit. Um, so yeah, and then and then they and then that's when they do the uh, they just peace out because it's not her hands. It's like oh, whoop, bye. Um, yeah. And then we get then we get to see all this this hell side, uh, yeah. Uh, the painted lots of painted backgrounds, very nice looking painted backgrounds. Lots of spooky tunnels, uh, mm-hmm. 
And, and okay, so this is this is a thing I wanted to talk about. This is where we get into metaphysics, and and again, maybe some of the inconsistencies, or maybe we can turn them into consistencies. But <laughs> Kirsty's whole thing here is she's trying to go find Larry. She's trying to find her dad, and she's actually pretty okay with the fact that uh, Tiffany just opened a portal to hell because that's what she kind of wanted to do: go in there and get him. But then she 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 confronts uh, I want to say Pinhead and Co. Mm-hmm. I think it's Pinhead who tells her this. Um, but basically yeah. she's like, she's trying to find Larry and, and whoever it is, is like, you know, Larry's in his own personal hell. You'll, you know, you'll never find him. Um, which maybe, maybe that's a factual statement and not bluster, but, mm-hmm. uh, but Frank is also in his own personal hell and she totally finds him. And, and, and so if, if she can find Frank but not Larry, why is that? Is it because Frank wanted to be found or because Julia or Pinhead wanted her to find Frank or because something in her fate? Or I think it's because the the, our, the the Cenobites of the movie, The Order of the Gash, which is you know Pinhead and co., um, I think it's because they're in charge of Frank's punishment. So And the box goes to specifically their hell dimension. Yeah. And... Larry, um, Larry could just be in someone else's jurisdiction. Yeah, exactly. Is one take on it. I, I could buy that. My one of the things I think is interesting is like this is this is part of the premise of the the Cenobites and the labyrinth because it's not I, as much as people say go to hell or mm-hmm. I need a ticket to hell. You know, Pinhead never says, "Oh, by the way, this is a hell." By the way, this is the place that's contraposed to heaven. It's much more sort of like vague about how it ties into traditional like Judeo Christian. Uh, right. theology there because even even the idea that pain taken to the extreme and pleasure taken to the extreme mingle and are the same suggests this is more of like a realm of experience than a specific valence of morality in the afterlife uh, so maybe the idea maybe Larry's personal hell is being de- de- defined in this very neutral definition of hell as some post-life experience maybe a nice enough hell is heaven. Maybe Larry's in his own personal hell where things are pretty it's like okay. Hades, where uh, just the Hades of, of, of Greek myth, where it's 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 the the afterworld, and yeah. it's it's what you make of it. Yeah, and and, and so Larry, Larry's just mm-hmm. having you know a housewarming party that never ends. He's hanging yeah. around, he's drinking, having fun with old friends. You know, it's the eternity of the paper hats. It's, <laughs> It's just he's having a great time. That's why that's why Kirsty can't find him because she's not in that kind of place. Yeah, she's she's, she's not ready to go and actually, uh, you know, deal with that. So I think I, I I feel like there's some big big questions about the theology of Hellraiser that are not really answered at least so far in the films, uh, and I'm not sure I'm confident they ever will be because I feel like it's a little too reductive to just say oh it's hell and they're demons. But if not, then then what is going on? So I think that's I think that's something we'll have to continue to explore basically. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, so yeah, so this is a uh, oh, it's, this is Tiffany. She she's the one that, that's in hell in this scene, um, and she ends up at a carnival because oh, you know, oh boy, a carnival. That's that's you know, I I went into this other dimension. You know what? I'm gonna go anywhere but the carnival. Is is that like a haunted slaughterhouse? Done. You know, you think you'd avoid the carnival, yeah. and um, and it's just in it's- the. In the background, uh, remember the remember now the first Hellraiser movie where where Kirsty is walking under those pylons for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, they're in the carnival. There's a bunch of like identical pylons <laughs> just in the background of the carnival. I didn't notice that. That's great. Yeah. And then she encounters the um, 
this actually took me a bit to figure out. So she she gets in there, and uh, so there's she goes into the carnival, and it's like a freak show, and there's all these horrible things. So there's um, there's a juggler who's just sitting there, and then you realize he's juggling eyeballs. Then it zooms in, and oh, he's juggling his own eyeballs because <laughs> uh, they're ripped out. And then there's like a baby floating, and it's it's like mouth is sewn shut with a thread, but there's still like baby crying. And then there's like and an Tiffany's cla- and Tiffany's mm-hmm. notably silent through much of the film, and so maybe the baby represents Tiffany as you know the relative child in the situation, and the sewn shut could be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't Tiffany know. has has exactly three expressions in this movie. There's confusion, worried confusion, and resolute confusion. Yes, and she just alternates through all of them. So right now, I think it was between regular confusion and worried confusion. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so, and and the last thing is that clown that yells and breaks the mirror. And uh, I. I can't tell if I'm reading into this too much, but I think it was like a see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil thing. Because, you know, eyeballs, yeah. sewn shut mouth, and then the clown yells so loud it breaks the mirror, you know, hearing. It's just ham-handed enough to work. I can yeah. buy that. Uh, I, yeah, I thought the carnival thing was so ridiculous. It's like, how, yeah. Yeah, how ham-handed can you get? But whatever. It was, it was very Bill and Ted's bogus We have all these leftover sort of. props and ideas. Yep. What do we do? Well, and, I lo- and I love that it's like a, a spooky carnival amidst a bleak, eternal hellscape of labyrinth. It's not even like, you know, a internally consistent stretch of weirdness. It's just like there's it's – like, it's like a strip mall in hell, yeah. a strip mall carnival amidst the eternal maze of featureless, bleak walls under a horrible sky. But yes, yeah, yeah. so, and that's when we start to get backstory on Tiffany that, oh, maybe her mom, it's not so much she's, she's a mystery, it's that uh, Chenard must have known that uh, Tiffany would be useful and maybe had his mo- her mom killed is maybe what happened there. Yeah, that, that's heavily implied, but never substantiated. Yeah, we never get much more, but that's when we first see that. And then we see some of that same footage again later when the beam of Leviathan hits her and we get the flashback yeah. montage. I got to say, that is that is one of my favorite little bits of the established mythos of it. Uh, from the series, I love, I love the idea that there's this giant unifying panopticon of of sort of like knowledge and order that's actually the fundamental driving engine of this entire uh, sort of hellish post-human scheme, yeah. and that it and then it's just gonna it turns its eye on you as it does on everyone, and then there's this sense of knowledge, and whether it's Leviathan's knowledge of you or you having a profound moment of self-knowledge or a combination of the two. Maybe it's scanning you to figure out what exactly it should do Cenobite-wise if you get chucked in a box. I just, I, I liked the imagery and I liked, I more or less yeah. liked the execution of, of the uh, scanner beam montage of memory experience stuff too. Yeah, that was Because they do Tiffany and then they do, uh, well, they do Tiffany the second, they do Chenard first. And I think that happens to Chenard, and then he gets stuffed in the box. So that's mm-hmm. part of my my theory there that it's like that's that's receiving in in the labyrinth is when you get scanned by Leviathan. Right. Oh, a uh, piece of trivia. You know that honking noise that Leviathan made? Yes. That it's Morse code for the word God. Huh. I did not know that. That's awesome. And yeah, that was um. Yep. Uh, so let's see. Right. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. So, and at, at the end of like Tiffany's thing in, uh, or at the end of this scene of Tiffany in the labyrinth, she reaches out for something, and then it cuts. But we never find out what she was reaching out toward. 
and it's never really made clear why or what. And I, I always thought that was kind of weird because it was, you know, sort of spooky. And you know, you think you'd get the payoff later, but no, it never comes. You never find out what it is that she's reaching out toward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't make any sense of that either. It's the button that said next scene. <laughs> she is the editor. Oh my god, <laughs> that all makes sense. Ah, uh, what is? I feel like I feel like there's so much. I, yeah. I, I almost feel like we should like jump to notable stuff because otherwise we're going to end up going four hours on this sucker. That's that's true. Um, oh, uh, so Pinhead's talking to Kirsty when she ends up in the labyrinth where he was like, where he's just you know he gives her the speech and he's just like, feel free, explore. Six hours ago, she defeated him and all of his minions, and then now he's just like, you're clearly harmless. Just go, go well, do your thing. Let's let's be clear. I'm not sure she defeated him. I think she annoyed him. Like, she sent him back with the box, but she sent him back to where he totally has a job and seems comfortable. So I think as much as anything, he's, like, sort of being bitchy. He's like, oh, yeah, well, you want to shoot me with my own box? Well, how about you wander around my uh, hellscape for a while? Have a great time. I don't care. It's it's I I think to some extent, he was just being a little bit uh, overt back in the end of the first film when he was like, no, what do you really want? He's like, no, don't do that. Come on. Uh, yep. But maybe that's me trying to lend everything a little bit more uh, <laughs> reasonableness than it really has. Um, let's see. So, okay. So, uh, Chouinard's transformation. So that now, so I, I think at this point, like everybody of note is currently in the labyrinth, right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so, uh, let's see. So, um, what happened? Julia is sort of like uh, sneaking him towards the box that he doesn't know is coming. So she's sort of like being still sort of like, oh, uh, blah, blah, blah. and I think, I think oh, you might want to say what you mean by when, when we say box, it's not, oh, the, yeah, uh, not, yeah, not yeah. the closet. There's a hell closet that uh, comes up. A lot of, a lot of what happens in the labyrinth happens on top of uh, not overly wide bit of pavement that apparently has sheer drop off cliffs to oblivion. So they're just sort of walking around on a 12 or 15 foot wide tarmac and uh, coming up from the side of where there's no railings behind uh, Dr. Chouinard uh, is some weird looking hell closet. It's got similar sort of design aesthetic as Le Marchand's box, you know, the intricate yeah. scroll work or whatever. Uh, but Julia sort of... Oh, I was going to say, this is when we, in fact, discover that this is hell for um, OSHA investigators. <laughs> There's no guidelines. or Oh, yeah, jeez. Um, <laughs> yeah, they just, just seeing it is enough to drive them mad. Uh, no ramps. What if you're in a wheelchair? Come on. Uh, so, yeah, she talks him back into this box through some misdirection, and I think that's when she reveals that why do you think I was allowed to come back is because I was getting souls, and I got yours, buddy. And then, and then, yeah, he gets grabbed by this box, and it basically pulls him in these weird bug-like limbs and whatnot, and four or five parallel uh, thin piano wires get dragged across his face and sort of distend and cut his face mm-hmm. up. And, and then the closet just closes up and goes back down, and then I guess he's, he's in processing for the next however much of the film yeah. before he comes back up and reveals but himself. But not before one of the tentacles goes into his mouth. Oh, right, yes. He's definitely Once got again. a tentacle mouth on the way down. We've got to have the mouth action. A tentacle's like a finger. It's close <laughs> enough. It's a hell finger. Hell finger? Um, finger mouth two. Hell finger. Now, um, oh, and the, okay, so then, so he, he gets, uh, so the elevator goes down, and then it cuts to Kirsty inside of um, 
you know, Larry and Julia's house, but not really. It's like like a, a simulacrum, of, a simulacrum of their house in hell. Yes, and um, a couple of uh, like like her dream in the first one, where there was like a body under a sheet laying on a slab. Um, she sees that again, except there's three this time, and um, and they're naked, sexy ladies writhing. And she pulls the sheet off of one of them, and um, you see like. It, it's, so the special effect is clearly supposed to be that she pulls off the sheet and there's nothing there, even though there was clearly something there. But when she pulls the sheet off, there's a split second shot of the woman that's under there, and then the woman just like pops out, like you know, like a cheap, tr- cheap, cheap camera effect. And it's like you guys really just should have like it was yeah, just, cut, just cut the opposite shot of Kirsty and the, yeah. the 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 sheet, you know, mm-hmm. and then cut back to yeah. the empty bed. Come on, it's not hard. Yeah. And then uh, she uh, she sees uh, like a uh, a uh, what do you call it? It was like a vanity with a bunch of makeup on it, and it's all red. And I think that was supposed to be a callback to uh, Julia, like seeing the red nail polish yeah. and Frank cutting open the rat and stuff. Yeah. And then um, oh, and here's Frank. Yep. He and comes like, out of the shadows, where he I guess he was waiting. Yes. He just quickly ran into the shadows. It's like oh shit, oh, she's coming. Yeah. He's got all the time in the world. Yeah. And um, and now. Frank got a line where he says, when you're dead, you're a fucking dead. Now, I don't know if I misheard that or, or something, but I, I, that, I have no idea what happened there. Um, and then, okay, and then it's implied that, like, this whole thing about, like, there being, like, sexy women on their sheets, but you pull the sheet off and it's not there. It's implied that this is his punishment in hell. Yes, this is his personal hell, is that he's... And- I'm trying to figure out if, like, the fact that, so, okay, ironic punishment, he's, you know, a pervert, he can't, you know, screw these writhing women? Well, I guess that's not that he's a perfect... Anyway, that's the ironic part of his per- punishment. I'm wondering if the fact that this is like the most boringly conceived punishment is also an ironic part, <laughs> because he's like, you know, a thrill seeker, and he gets this like, kind of, you know, crappy, it's like, oh, nothing under the sheet. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does seem kind of like a, a, a small, lame, personal hell uh but hey, it's, that's the point. I don't. I, it's not like I like Frank, so it's, I'm not going <laughs> to complain exactly. But uh, but yeah, and then she sets him on fire, and his skin goes away again. Like he's oh no, not, not I don't want to lose my skin again. Even though I showed up in your hospital room a few hours ago with no skin on to fake you into thinking that I was your dead dad, but somehow losing my skin here is bad. It's it's it, it's all it's all very confusing. Yeah, everything in that room was apparently incredibly flammable and cursing <laughs> because the what what she does is he's just like you know come to daddy and she's you know she says some like one liner and then she takes one of the sheets and there's there's candles everywhere and she throws it onto the candles and the room just explodes into this blazing inferno yep. because sheets in hell are incredibly flammable. They, uh, it's the fabric um, softeners they use. They're- yeah, and and it was it's hot enough. Nothing happens to her, but you know all the skin, skin melts off Frank, and he's like, not my skin, and like roughly the same tone as uh, Nicolas Cage in The Wicker Man screaming, "Not the bees, <laughs> bees. <laughs> not my skin." Um, yeah, and then uh, we should do a supercut of people saying "not" things emphatically, like you know, "not to twenty or not to fifty, not the bees, not my skin." Yeah. Those three scenes, at least, that'll be the supercut. Please go on. <laughs> um, oh, and then Julia shows up. Um, and hang on, Julia shows up. She does she still have skin at this point? I think so. I. It didn't come off at her at any point. It only comes off. Yes, a yes, bit yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then she. Uh, yeah. So she tears um, out Frank's heart. Yeah, but not before putting his fingers in her mouth. <laughs> Very important. 
and then she tears out his heart. But I can't tell. I think she does it like from the back or something because she definitely doesn't do it from the front. Like she's just that they're they're talking, and then she makes like a vague hand motion, and it's like, oh, she's got it. It's like a got your nose thing. Yeah, it's like oh, got your heart. Um, and then he dies. Yep. And then Kirstie and Tiffany sort of face off with Julia, and they have that struggle, and and that's how Julia's skin gets ripped back off. So there's just this sad oh, sack of, of Julia skin. Yeah. After like the yeah. wind tunnel thing and the someone's, you know, someone's got the box and the box uh, is now a spike. It's now a spike that yes, looks just like a Leviathan, um, yes. which is just like, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, just picture a four sided pyramid. Um, just one on top of the other and then just really stretched out. So very thin. So it looks kind of like a dagger almost. I want to say it's, it's actually a three sided pyramid and this is something I take issue with because we go from, we go from a box with four sides to a pyramid that during a transformation sequence clearly is from a box that would have three sides. So geometrically this doesn't totally line up and they don't really sell the transition in a way that I like. They sort of covered up with some effects, but uh, Yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely a, a, a three-sided, uh, spiky, uh, double-ended pyramid. Yeah, um, and th- that and um, this thing is big. This thing, I'm going to say, it's like the size of maybe slightly smaller than a forearm, not counting the hand. And as they're running away uh, from Julia and from the labyrinth, which is you know the entrance, which is about to close, is Tiffany and Kirsty. Kirsty trips and she loses it. This thing is big and heavy. First of all, where was she carrying it that it just fell out <laughs> like that? And second of all, how did she not notice? Because it makes like a clanking noise. You know, it drops out pretty obviously. She's like, where is that like five pound thing that was in my pocket? Yeah. That's um, also incredibly important, presumably. Yeah. Kirsty is a person who seems to be most genre savvy, genre savvy, like, you know, horror film character ever somehow doesn't get a good grip on the thing that's like the key out of hell. I forgot I, the MacGuffin. Yeah, it's a little weird. I spent like, like until that thing showed up again. I spent the entire segment of the film thinking, "Yeah, but you don't have the fucking box. What are you gonna do? Go- you need the box. Come on!" You know, it was very distracting to me that she didn't seem to be distracted by that. Yep. And then, um, okay, so that ends. Oh, and then the uh, the wardrobe emerges. Um, the the that that uh, that that kidnapped uh, Shenard, and now we get this is the uh, the the. The coming out scene for the Shenard Cenobite, which yes. I think in canon is just called the Shenard Cenobite. See, I would have assumed they he'd be like the doctor because obviously he's a doctor. It's a, yeah, but uh, and that might have been too obvious because I mean, all of the, it, he's so doctor themed that calling him the doctor might have been a little too much even for this movie. I guess. Um, so he's a. Uh, would you would you like to paint us a word picture here? So he comes out. Yeah. So he comes out of the. He comes out of the closet, as as you say, uh, and he's his skin has gone from being you know the normal livid color of a upset human to being the sort of this blue purple things are not right. But he's obviously at peace with this whole thing, and he sort of chuckles and he's like, "Oh, if only I had known, uh, I would never have resisted." And blah, blah, blah. so he's clearly on board with this whole post-human centibite existence. And then this giant larval intestinal arm comes out from the the oblivion below and opens up sort of like a, a a sandworm mouth sort of thing at the front of it and there's a little whirring bone just like the whirring blade on the uh the, the brain saw at the opening of the film when he was giving this little speech about the mind being a puzzle back at the institute and that whirs into the back of his head which is apparently somewhat upsetting 
temporarily and yeah. and then sort of picks him up and from then on he's being carried around by this giant oblivion arm of intestine from below which uh, means he can only appear in very specific places because <laughs> they never they never really explain what's at the other end of that arm yeah. and he shows up in the real world you know held aloft by that thing so th- is is there like you know like a cenobite like elephant down there somewhere just you know with a really long trunk and that's what it is? Yeah, I don't know. You know he can only burst through windows and come up from abysses. That that's it, basically the, the the range of his motion. It is very confusing. Yeah, there's never um, really any clear mechanic established there. Oh, and when that thing is whirring into his head, he's um, he's just going like uh, like a, like a cartoon character being electrocuted. <laughs> it, yeah, that was. Um, oh, and then he uh, who does he? God, who does he turn to? I think at some point he he's talking to Kirsty or Tiffany, and he says you could never hold on to anything for very long, and that's supposed to be like you know a very appropriate line for the moment because he now has Lamarchand's box and stuff. But she she's not really a character where it's established that she loses a lot of things. Yeah, I mean she lost her mom and I guess her dad, his and, skin, and then yeah, and, and then and then the box and you know Steve. I guess she lost yeah. Steve. Because he never yeah. came back to the hospital because he's a dick. <laughs> oh wait, hang on. Um, oh yeah, the, the the Julia thing actually happens. I think it's crosscut like Chenard's uh, like you know, debut and uh, Tiffany and Julia, uh, Tiffany and Kirsty getting away from Julia. Julia, I think that's crosscut. Oh okay. Um, yeah. So. Dun, dun, dun. So yeah, they they get away from her, and then um, they have like Kirsty and Tiffany have a very awkward hug, where just like <laughs> one of them puts like her, I think it was like Tiffany puts like her hand on top of Julia's head, and then they embrace, and it's just like the like the weirdest start to well, a hug. It's, I have it's ever one seen. of those things where if you don't know if you should put your fingers in their mouth or not, and so you <laughs> sort of half-ass it, and then you end up not and. It just looks like two people who have seen hugging on television before. <laughs> they they know what goes into the middle part, but they're not sure how the beginning works. <laughs> they they tuned in late. Yeah. Uh, so then then the next the, me- the next major thing I thought thought was worth commenting on was the confrontation with the Cenobites, where once again the Cenobites are like, okay, well maybe we will go after Kirsty because okay, and and then that's when Kirsty busts out. Because uh, we're in a horrible Cenobite room with hooks and whatnot, and then Kirsty busts out the picture of Elliot Spencer as a man who was not yet Pinhead, right? And Pinhead's like, "Oh, I don't," blah blah, and and then and then eventually he's like, "I do remember." And Pinhead does just a lot of bullshitting, where he's just like, "We've always been here." It's like, "Nope, you've been here for about." 50 years maybe 60 or so and then you know it's like i have no idea who this is it's like oh never mind that's me he you know he he sounds scary but he's 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 uh he's bluffing a lot well and the question how much of it is bluffing and how much of it is just being a bit addled by you know the the extremity of experience i guess you could argue that he's just been kind of busy uh being a master of hell or whatever Oh, and right before, um, right before Kirsty hands that picture, she's just like, you know, wait, we, we, you know, like, like, let's talk about this. And he says, you know, we want your flesh, not your skill at bargaining. <laughs> it's like I don't I, know. I think these are both useful things. You guys she's, could use her skill at bargaining. It seems like, yeah. You don't have the, uh, yeah. They don't really have a uh, compromise down. Yeah. Um, oh, and Shenard sings. 
like every other one of his lines, because I think he was ca- chasing Kirsty. He's he's he his voice like drops into singing like every time he yells for somebody, which is kind of weird. Um, it's got the joie de vivre. Yeah. Oh, uh, new, joie de mort. I don't know. Joie de mort. Um, new design for the Chatterer. Yeah, so uh, so so you were out. saying you read about what happened there. What's going on? We've got a chatterer who looks significantly different from the same chatterer we already know. So what happened in um, you know, our world, let's call it universe A, um is that the actor was just like I can't see shit in this costume, fix this. And in the film there was going to be a scene where he where I, the way it was phrased on the website where I read it, it was called where he gains his vision, but that was cut out as well. Ah. Uh. And I guess replaced with another two or three minutes of footage from Hellraiser. <laughs> um, so that would explain why he, he's got a new character model. That, that's good to know. I, I, I will enjoy imagining that scene. Maybe we can find some uh, work print stuff about it or whatever. Uh, and then, uh, so she hands him that photo and then she she's, just starts chanting, remember, remember when you were all human, which is just coming from some completely different movie. Um, just because she's, she's, you know, I'm appealing to your humanity, demons from beyond space. Uh, oh, and then Shinard shows up and kills everybody. Yep. Yeah, tr- yeah. just when you start to think, oh, maybe there's something. Shinard pops in on his tentacle and he's like, I'm in charge now. And then, yeah, he, he, he kills the Cenobites. Uh, and, and I think the intention here is like the Cenobites are... Are, are sort of like, okay, we do remember being human. We know where you're coming from. We'll stick up for you here, so we'll stall them while you get away. But they don't get away during the stalling. Like, no. the Cenobites get killed really quickly, but the whole time, Kirsty and Tiffany are still just hiding in the corner, uh, after which they escape. Uh, uh, the di- actually, I read something about the director with this, because this, the Cenobites, he... Okay, so Shenard, like, you know, comes up, and then he's like, his hand, like, these three tentacles, like, explode out of his hand, and the tentacles each oh have God, mouths. those fucking tentacles. And, yeah, and the mouths open, and then an eyeball comes out of the mouth, and then a knife comes out of the eyeball. <laughs> One of those things is... really didn't need to be there. Um... And then so and then he fires off these tentacles, which turn you know like into spears, and that's how he kills the Cenobites just by stabbing them in the chest. Um, yeah. And uh, so, with the, the uh, so, it seems weird that you know he he just kills all of them so easily. And there was actually uh, there was an interview done with the uh, either the director or the writer where he says that the Cenobites were spiritually weakened by having been reminded by Kirsty that they were human. And were they in their, quote, full Cenobitic glory, they would have been able to defeat Shenard. So we can blame Kirsty. Uh, I think that's fair. I think it's probably her fault. Yep. Uh, and, uh, so, and then, oh, and then they all turn human when they die. Yeah, and, and they all turn human when they die, but, but, but Pinhead, interestingly, most of them, they, if I remember right, they, they sort of get a tentacle spear through them and they follow her. Mm-hmm. Like the, the female Cenobite, Butterball, Chatterer, they fall mm-hmm. down and then they're human, mm-hmm. like uh, just as a flash cut. But then Pinhead, did Gennard sort of like hit him with some sort of beam that turned him human before he got killed is how I feel like I remember that scene going. He, it, it looked like he, yeah, he hit him with some sort of a beam that healed him. Cause you, there was like this, it was like the opposite of his transformation in the beginning where yeah. like the, the, the pins and the wounds started going away. And then suddenly he's, you know, um, just the, uh, the human with his hair, uh, just in pinheads dress and covered in blood. Yeah. And then he, and it, gives, it, and it gives Kirsty this little look. Oh yeah, as a human, sort of like a oh, I, I understand now what it is to cry. Wait, no, that's Terminator too. But anyway, he's 
yeah, it gives her this look, and then and then yeah, he gets his throat slit by uh, the doctor and falls down and bleeds out, and then they escape uh, because they're terrible at timing. Yeah. Oh, and but, the uh, uh, the human forms of the of the other Cenobites, um, female, the female Cenobite, who's played by a different actress in this. Um, yeah, which, it's definitely a different one from the first one. Yeah. Uh, so she's. It turns out that she was a woman. Um, it turns out that Butterball was a fat guy, and the big reveal was that the Chatterer was a teenager. <laughs> that that yeah. So um, and that 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 takes a while because he gets he gets pinned to that like rotisserie of horror thing. It's oh, like God, the yeah. rotating uh the hell rotating pillar. the hell pillar, and then it rotates a few times, and then there's like a reaction shot from uh, Tiffany screaming, so they wouldn't have to show Chatter actually transforming into the kid. And then it's like, oh, it turns out it's a kid and clothes way too big for him. Um, which so I, I guess they grew him in hell. <laughs> he bulked up. Do yeah. you need lift, bro? Um, um, yeah. And then, uh, so let's see. Okay, so there's that. Oh, there's um, there's a flashback for Tiffany with like her origin story of uh, her mother taking her to Doctor Shenard, the surgeon, because she likes puzzles too much. <laughs> can you help this my daughter? This is the entire. Yeah, it's. Can you help my daughter? These puzzles are obsessing her, surgeon. You, can yeah. you hack up something there? So that well, was and little- to be fair, I mean, she probably went to the institute, and where he probably you know specializes in dealing with you know mental illness, not necessarily just by cutting their brains open, but but yeah. In any case, yeah, mom shows up, and then and that's I think that's about where Tiffany gets her voice back, where she starts talking yeah. a little bit. Um, I think there was a point where Kirsty or it's either Kirsty or Shenard or somebody says to her something like because they they see like the the fact that she's just. She's the whole movie. She's mute and she's kind of weird. And they said it's like it's like a puzzle, isn't it? I'm like, no, no, it's PTSD. <laughs> she's she's incredibly traumatized. It's not a puzzle. We've <laughs> lay off the metaphors, guys. Sometimes you can just say, hey, this 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 girl got fucked up by terrible things that happened, you know. Uh, and then there's like I think after that, like Kirsty and Tiffany, uh. They basically escape back to the hospital, but then sort of hell comes with them. Oh, and that's where – that's right. That's where all the patients with the puzzle boxes are. Yeah. Uh, they just do a quick tour of just yeah. like one of the rooms of the patients, and they're all holding puzzle boxes, and all the puzzle boxes have hooks in their heads. Yeah. And it's implied that something is like actively happening, but we're not really quite sure what. Yeah. Like is he harnessing their power? It was a pretty cool shot. Um, Maybe they, oh, he they, handed those out before uh, – before he actually brought Tiffany back, and, and they just uh, they'd been working on it the whole time, but they're all terrible at it. Or maybe it was like a like a flight attendant thing where he shows them all how to do it. But <laughs> man, there was there was a lot of people in there having, and they were all you know incredibly you know severely mentally ill. That was a pretty good uh, group puzzle solving activity Seriously. there that they all got them open. This is some serious uh, group therapy stuff. Uh, they run by um, as they're running out of the hell. They run by Julius Skin. Which is just sort of flopped out and yep. looks kind of funny. Um, so let's see. Oh, uh, Shinard tries to attract Tiffany with his tentacles, one of which sprouts a flower, and the other <laughs> one sprouts a finger that makes the come here motion, which is just so much creepier than just saying come here or something. Seriously. When your, your hand grows a finger that grows a finger that says, hey, baby, yeah, you, you're not the. <laughs> You're not making a good entreaty at that point. And then... Uh, maybe that's another callback to all the MC Escher stuff. Yeah, maybe so. Oh, but then... then uh, 
then, 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 so uh, Tiffany goes back for the box and, and yeah, has that encounter, I think, with Shenard. Uh, but then Julia shows up and starts macking on Shenard, which distracts she shows him up. Oh, yeah, yeah. from Julia killing shows. Tiffany. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were talking about Lord of the Rings before. This scene is a lot like the, the throw, having to throw the ring into the. Um, I, I, what were they, what did they throw? Doom, the ring in? Yeah, yeah. The, when they had to throw the ring into Mount Doom, it's like it's got a lot of the same like epic sort of. We must you know destroy this artifact, but it's so hard. But we must destroy it. Feel. Yeah. Um, and then so yeah so uh, Julia distracts him as uh, as Tiffany solves the puzzle box, which is right now like a puzzle dagger. Uh, yeah. So she turns it back into the box. Right, and then um, Shenard has the lamest death scene I have ever seen. <laughs> so he, he fires off like his tentacle hooks at Tiffany, but he misses and hits the ground where they get stuck and he has to pull him out. He's pulling him and he's pulling him and he's pulling him. He pulls him out. He tries to pull him out so hard he fails and accidentally decapitates himself. <laughs> this was not one of the better made Cenobites. I, yeah. I think they cut some corners here. Yeah, they really didn't sort of, they didn't stick the landing on that. Uh both within and outside of uh, of of the the context of the film, I feel like it did. Uh, I mean, it was kind of awesome seeing his head ripped off, yeah. but still, could have uh, could have set it up a little better. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, so it turns out that Julia is actually Kirsty wearing Julia's skin and dress and and shoes. Right, right. Um, and so Tiffany falls off of the edge of this, you know, OSHA unapproved, uh, you know, deadfall here, and she grabs, uh, you know. She, she's hanging on for dear life. And then Julia, who we don't yet know is Christy, she extends her hand. She's like, you know, you got to trust me. And, to, and oh, you, you hear Christy's voice. Yeah. Um, and so Tiffany grabs the hand and then the skin starts coming off. You know, you see the skin tearing, which is a pretty cool effect. Um, so it just starts like coming off or like, you know, like an opera length glove. And um, the thing is, she's holding, she's supporting herself with one hand and holding Tiffany by the other hand. But the entirety of the skin of the hand falls into the abyss behind Tiffany, which means at some point she must have stopped hanging on and then grabbed back on before she could fall. It made no sense whatsoever. Yeah, cause, cause, yeah that, that whole that sequence, you knew what they wanted, but they like did it two different ways and then cut them together in a way that just made something that didn't work at all. There was um, uh, there was a scene in Futurama where like Bender tries to you know break out of like prison or something and he like tries to bend like the bar so hard both of his arms fall off and then you see like a uh, extreme zoom in shot of like his arm like attaching his like like one of his arms picks up his arm and attaches it into his body and then that arm grabs the other one and attaches the other one and then you zoom out and Fry's like how did you do that <laughs> <laughs> Yep it's it's basically that except for in the other direction Yeah um <sighs> But then that's basically... Oh, and then Tiffany uh, removes, like, Julia's skin from her, and at first she rips it off, and then the last part of the face, they clearly didn't attach it because it looks like she's peeling it, but there's definitely a lot of room between where the face is and where her face is. Um, yeah. And then they... Let's see. Oh, and then for some reason, so they, they run back, and they're, they're slick with water when they get back into, like, the... Uh, hospital room in reality. Maybe it's like maybe were, it's a metaphor for afterbirth. Once again, the the notion of rebirth. I'm yeah. just gonna I'm just gonna say everything is a metaphor for rebirth. Is, that, uh, that that works. Um, and then yeah. Uh, and then and then they 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 leave the asylum after their horrible like eight hour long travail. Yep. Because and I we, guess you can just leave. And we get the classic horror milm horror milm. Uh, 
<laughs> we have such films to show you. Uh, we get the classic horror film fake ending with the the protagonist apparently being okay and walking away, and the music gets light and there's sunshine. You know, uh, I didn't know you could just escort out an unrelated uh, unrelated patient in a mental facility just by like, oh, we're leaving now. Well, who's going to stop him? I mean, Doctor Shenard. <laughs> we established that he doesn't have much of a staff apparently. That yeah, so. However it is, yeah, they leave, and then the and then the required code of where things aren't actually quite so okay comes in, and it's the movers. It's yeah. the movers from – well, okay, here's Matt, the thing. Bob, and uh, – And fuck. whatever the name of the guy is who was uh, – oh, shit, I don't know. Uh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. So so Mad Bob, the, who's the younger guy, and then the older guy. But it's a different older guy in this one than the other one. So Mad Bob's the same guy who was helping with the mattress and was maxing on the ladies. He's got a very distinct face. Yeah. And then in this, in this one, instead of an older bald guy is what I remember from the first one, this guy looks like George Lucas. Yeah. Um, and doesn't really get uh, – much to do but 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 mad bob the younger guy he goes up and finds the mattress uh and clearly they were the ones that moved this in the first place is what i'm taking it to the doctor's house so they're going and getting it again on somebody's orders i don't remember what they <laughs> said that justified them even being there but uh maybe it's their mattress and they're renting it out like they're allowed oh. to take whatever they want and yeah they're actually trying to start a mattress country uh uh, uh, franchise but so he finds the mattress and then somebody reaches out and grabs him and pulls him into the mattress and sucks him dry and i think george lucas mm-hmm. comes along and sees like the bottom half of his body at the edge of the mattress and the top half mm-hmm. is just gone and then the pillar in a really bad blue screen effects shot yep. gets composited in coming out of the mattress and spinning and we see faces on it. All of the horror motifs of the two movies are on it. There's like Frank's cut up body. There's Chenard's face, Pinhead, all the Cenobites, um, all of the creepy effects from the carnival. They actually did a really good job decorating that pyramid. Oh, yeah. No, I'd love to have that in my house if I was like, you know, wanting to have a Hellraiser room. It was, it was a nice uh, diorama in pillar form. But it also made no fucking sense. And I realize no. this is like I'm complaining that they did something that's talking to the audience instead of to the film universe. But that's the thing. It really is like this scene exists entirely for us, the viewer, to say, oh, my God, it's the pillar and there's Pinhead's face and whatnot. And, and, and it just – it bugged me because I wanted uh, – I wanted there to be some reason for this to be happening other it than... It was literally inexplicable. There was no reason for the pillar to come out just because it ate some guy. Yep. Although, you know what? Now, um, remember how the last time I, I mentioned that there really should be like a, a, a buddy series starring the two movers? Well, one of them died, but I'm thinking it actually might be better if one of them's a Cenobite. Uh-huh. That was an odd couple sort of thing. Yeah. He, he's a blue-collar worker from not Brooklyn... He's a post-human existing in a dimension of pain. They move things. Yeah, it could be. I, I, we got a solid uh, sitcom uh, spinoff there, I think. Oh, and um, the last thing that appears right before the end credits on the pyramid is the uh, the, the homeless man from the first movie that turns into the, the, the skull dragon. Yeah, the hobo skull dragon. Yeah, and we see his face, and it's crawling with... Oh, God, was that even CGI or what? What was that? I, the, I don't it was, remember. This is crawling with crickets, but the effect is so bad that yeah. I, I, I don't know if it was stop motion. And then he says, "What's your pleasure, sir?" Yeah. Which is weird because he that he's not the person that's been saying that. Exactly. As far as we know, he worked for creepy Asian dude in some capacity as the yeah. guardian of the box. Uh, and I want to know is if he's the puzzle if his chart job is to sort of like be in charge of this whole boxing is he in charge of all those boxes or is it just the one box and the rest of the boxes there's a bunch of other hobo dragons 
Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Also, the Cenobites all got killed, but then they're on the pillar. They died in hell and came back to being Cenobites again in hell, but stapled to the pillar. I, I don't really understand. The whole thing, it, frankly, it feels like a little bit of a mess. It feels like they threw that on there just to set up sequelism rather than to have it make any fucking sense. Yeah, because that whole pillar is is a big part of uh, the third Hellraiser movie. It's it's like the central artifact of that movie. So, oh, um, yeah. Which is weird because I don't think they knew that there was going to be a sequel. I think this might have been shot like well after. I think this might that that scene specifically that feels like something that may have been shot after they knew that they were going to do a third thing because it's definitely like it's 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 so so epilogue-y that yeah that it feels very it, tacked on. It's stapled on. Well, it says uh, Hellraiser three was released in ninety two, so that's like four years later. Oh, so yeah, hmm. so yeah. Well, maybe we'll find out some more about that. Uh, well, I, 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 I we've cataloged the. Uh, the 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 through line of the movie pretty well at this point. I, do you, did you have any other specific notes you wanted to mention? Uh, I'm just going through my, my my trivia notes to see if there wasn't anything um, I did not mention. Um, oh, there was supposed to be a, a much bigger subplot with the origin of Pinhead, um, but it was they didn't even shoot it. It was the 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 script. The parts of the script were taken out because they ran out of money. Um, what else? Uh, film grossed twice its budget uh, in America. It made $12 million on a $6 million budget. I, I don't know if that's good. And it grossed another million pounds in the UK, which I guess is like $1.5 million or so. Might have been um, more at the time, yeah. yeah. The, okay, oh, um, the, the scene where uh, Julia drains Kyle's blood. So she had to study judo for that for some reason. I, <laughs> don't ask me why. But then she became a judo aficionado and came in fourth place at the Chattenham Judo Cup of 1994. That's awesome. That's so she don't <laughs> fuck with her. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, wow, that's 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 a that's a nice little detail. Oh, you know, I had a I, I had a, this is not so much as a thought as a as a dumb pun. Uh, but when we're talking about the metaphysics of hell and the possibility of heaven being just a flavor of quote unquote hell by this uh, theology. Uh, if Larry, if Kirsty can't find Larry because he died sort of in peace and he's, he's, he's off by himself where he's unfindable, then maybe it is heaven because if hell is other people, a private hell would almost by definition not be hell because there wouldn't be other people. So that's how we know, we know that uh, Larry's in heaven because of that aphorism from, I can't even remember uh, who it is. Sartre? Sartre. Okay. So there you go. It's uh, it's actually a very long shaky dog pun on Sartre is this entire <laughs> franchise. Um, I also wanted so to say, oh, mm-hmm. uh, this is going back to Julia coming out of the mattress so promptly. We, we sort of covered this already, but the, the, the note I had on this was the suggestion that the doc has been, Chenard had been looking into this stuff presumably for years. Julia was right there to pop out of the mattress. Um, I'm wondering if the suggestion is, I, again, there's the notion of maybe the fate that you were meant to find the box or whatever means maybe Leviathan knows that you were going to find it. And so maybe they're keeping an eye out or maybe like if you get your hands on the box at all, does that like get enough attention from the Cenobites that they're just sort of keeping half an eye on you from then on? Like they're sort of watching through the box to see, Oh, maybe he's going to open it. So maybe they're sort of keeping tabs. Like that's part of their day to day to do list is like, okay, who's, who's an active potential out there. In, I, I think, Earth. I think they'd have to, cause that's why they spare Tiffany. Right, because they know it's not it's not her hands that opens the box, but desire. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I think they. Uh, I, I think it's a it's a two way box. 
that they can see out of it. Um, yeah. Do you think, it, okay, so keeping half an eye on them, do you think there's a Cenobite who only has half an eye? Yes, but it's somewhere unexpected, like his mouth or something. That could work. Ooh, 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 ooh uh, okay, a Cenobite named, let's play a game called Adventa Cenobite. Uh, I'll go first. It's a Cenobite named Four Eyes, and he has he has four half eyes because what happened was his spectacles, his own glasses frames, uh, got shoved into his face and bisected his eyes, and so they, they turned into some rather sketchily special effects half eyes with split pupils, and he's got four of them. And it's like his backstory would be he's like a guy who really liked reading. Uh, like in some crazy, obsessive, sinful way. So that's his whole theme. And he's named Four Eyes. It's like it's like that time enough at last yes, it's, uh, it's, episode of Twilight it's, Zone. It's except Burgess for, Meredith. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so there we go. Burgess Meredith has Four Eyes in Hellraiser 10, Sex Comedy in Paris. <laughs> and go. What's your Cenobite? Give me a Cenobite. Now look around just, the room. Yes, just the first thing you see. Like yeah. A chandelier. Ooh. It would a fall chandelier. on him and he'd be like, it'd be like a tutu. Like yeah. a, a hoop skirt, and or um, maybe that. You know, I actually I visited the um, the there was a, there's a Ralph Stedman themed restaurant wow. in uh, in Minnesota in uh, just just downtown Minneapolis, and they have a chandelier there, and it's made of like everything that's hanging off is just dozens of knives, like butcher knives, carving <laughs> knives, and maybe that's what falls on him, and then he comes out of it, and he, he's you know knife chandelier cenobite. I bet if we talk to the people at the Stedman. Uh, uh, place and explained that we could get them to donate use of the space in exchange for credit on the film for Hellraiser 10. Ah. Stedman's sex comedy. I, I, I think we got to get this greenlit. Do you know anybody? I, yeah, I, I know a few people. Uh, I know my mom. I know my dad. Mm. Uh, are, they, are they in Hollywood? No, no, but I know them. Um. Um, so we can start there. Yeah, I mean, they probably know somebody in Hollywood. <laughs> I refuse to believe any of these movies were made anywhere near Hollywood past Hellraiser <laughs> 3. I really do. Um, or have anything to do with Hollywood. I, I bet yeah. at least one of them was financed by a guy whose nickname was Hollywood. It's like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm Joey Hollywood, the, you know, your Shablocknik. Uh, I, I, I make films and I, uh, I sell meth. <laughs> the great... Uh, Furniture store magnet Hollywood <laughs> Hollywood Stevens, Toronto, Ontario. <laughs> Mad Bob is actually based on a guy who used to him. Uh, <laughs> okay, I think I'm completely out of material at this point. Yeah. Uh, um, and, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, like I said in the beginning, we're we're all over the internet. We're we're on Tumblr. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Metafilter. God, you could you could find us anywhere. So yeah, just Google ideas, Google. We have such films to show you, and you will find us. Are we Are we coming up on top for that? We're the only people who that use right that now. phrase ever. So yeah. Let's see. So uh, oh, turn off personal results. Um, yeah, joshmiller.com, uh, that's the first result, and then there's the Tumblr, and then there's the iTunes feed, the Metafilter Projects thing, and then uh, Wikicode for Hellraiser with we have such bolded sites to not bolded, show you bolded. <laughs> okay, so all right. pretty smooth, so we're, we're all over Google, too. We're totally findable. Well, hey, yep. that, was a, that, was, that, was, that was a good episode, I feel like that yeah. went well. Good podcast, we should, uh, tune we in. do this again. Yeah, yeah, tune in in two weeks, um, and we will be doing Hellraiser 3. What is the tagline for Hellraiser 3? Oh, hell something. 
Hell on Earth, Hellraiser Three, ah, Hell on Earth, and where Earth we find is, if I haven't rewatched it yet. So this one, this, that's the last one that I haven't seen in years and years uh, at this precise moment in time. Uh, but I, if I remember right, it's got a bunch more of uh, hell, uh, Pinhead backstory in it. Like we get yes. more about Mr. Spencer. So yeah. I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to see what I see. Yeah, there was um, there was an Anthony Lane review of uh, the Avengers in the New Yorker when the Avengers came out, and he said that uh, in this movie the role of the world was played by New York. So in Hellraiser Three, Hell on Earth, the role of Earth is played by a goth club. <laughs> that sounds promising. We'll uh, we'll see what we have to say about that in a couple weeks. So uh, yeah, thanks everybody for uh, listening. To we have such films to show you, and uh, we'll and you go can't out. call in anymore. Podcast's over. So yep. please, Sorry, please, please, please stop something. calling. I'm Next trying time. to sleep. Uh. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>